Is your 2023 starting without a bang? Has yawning become your dominant characteristic? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy or low E. But Planet Fitness has the cure. With clean, spacious clubs and tons of equipment, you can boost your energy after one workout. Leave low E behind and find your big fitness energy at Planet Fitness. Join in the free PF app for $1 down, $10 a month. Offer extended through January 19th. See Home Club for details. Side and let Bill WD40 come into the Spreaker chat room to lube us up for tonight's show because we've got to slide nicely right in. That's why we lube things up. Kim Stanley, good to have you here. Hi, Atlantis is found. And who else is here? Grandizer in Arizona. Thanks for coming in. Heather McIntyre, looking gorgeous tonight. See you in Vegas. And Linda Bennett, thank you for joining us. And uh, we are caught up. We are finally caught up. Yeah. Talking monsters, legends, folklore. Patrick Spain, biologist, is here. I would, Yeah, we're going to get into it. Monsters. God, I love the monsters. It's so much fun. After a heavy day yesterday in the UFO world, getting into the monsters tonight, that's going to be fun. we got 20 seconds. Reminder, the Super Chat is open. Our store is open on our website. And if you're coming to Vegas in May for our second annual fan party, read the ticker here. Get your email to info at spacedoutradio.com so we can get you on the list officially. Horns up. Let's rock. From the mountains of central British Columbia to you listening around the world, this, my friends, is Spaced Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott, sitting in the captain's chair of SOR headquarters. We welcome you to tonight's show on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor. Hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at spaced out radio. Instagram at spaced out radio show. And on TikTok at spaced out radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Tonight's show is brought to you by Chive Charities. Help make the world 10% happier by visiting Chive Charities today. You can find them on our website. We got a power show for you tonight. Biologist Patrick Spain is here chasing and tripping on legends. We're getting into all the monster talk tonight. We got Swamp Dweller in hour number three to kick things off with another spooky story. And Tim Senor, the Timbit, will be here for the UFO report. Now, we've, before we bring in Pat Spain, it's hard to believe that tonight is the one-year anniversary of the passing of Butch Witkowski. Now, for many of you, Butch Witkowski, you knew as a guest on this show, who is our cranky curmudgeon of the monsters. And I'll tell you, a year ago, he passed away from symptoms uh, due to illness, and it's left a giant hole in all of us. 
And, you know, in this show, we've never recovered, even though we thank Lon Strickler for coming on for strange days and filling the big shoes of Butch. But tonight, you know, it's all about good memories and all the great things that Butch did for us. And what better way to honor Mr. Witkowski than to talk about monsters tonight? It's what he loved. It's what drove his passion and desire in his 73 years of life. And I just got to say, Butch, wherever you are, I know you have the answers. I know you've visited me in the studio here. I felt it. Uh, our psychic friends have picked you up saying, who's that cranky guy who seems to hang around your studio? And that's only one person. That's Butch Witkowski. And uh, we love you, Butch, wherever you are flying around in this universe on the other side. And don't forget uh, to come say hello to each and every one of us because we all miss you on a daily basis. And yeah, I'm going to stop right there because I will end up in tears. He was a mentor and like a father figure to be in this field. And I'm just going to cut it right there. We've said the good words and thank you, Butch. We love you, man. And let's get to tonight's show. I'm excited about this one. I'm going to tell you right now, I haven't, I've talked a total of about four minutes to Pat Spain. And I'm going to tell you right now, this dude somehow, some way is going to become a regular on this show. I can feel it. I already know it. And, you know, he's probably like, shut up already. Shut up, man. I don't even know who you are. And you're like radio hitting on me. But Patrick Spain is a wildlife biologist, cryptozoologist, biotech expert, television presenter, keynote speaker, author, father, and cancer survivor with a passion for adventure. Pat is also always enthusiastic about seeking out his next great escapade and the opportunity to add to his ever-growing list of things that have bitten or stung him. As the great nephew of the prophet of the unexplained, Charles Fort, Pat thinks of himself as carrying on a family tradition by questioning mainstream science, considering unusual explanations for bizarre phenomena, and generally investigating those things most people write off as impossible. You read that bio, you listen to that bio, and you think, hot damn, this guy's a good dude. And we're going to get right into it tonight. Patrick Spain, thank you so much for coming on Spaced Out Radio for the first time, my friend. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. I'm well. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? I am great. I am absolutely great. And, and you know, like I said off the bat, it's our one-year anniversary of uh, losing our good friend Butch Witkowski, who was chasing around bipedal canines, werewolf-like creatures in the heart of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know... And all sorts of monsters and UFOs, and you know, to have you on the show on a, on the one year anniversary of his passing, it, it's just a, a beautiful, smooth transition from the past to the future, my friend. And that's what I really it is. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I I got to tell you, when we talked pr- prior to the show earlier on, the energy that you have for monsters and legends and folklore. It is second to none. And I could tell when we were on the phone, and I could tell right now that this is what you live for. This is what you went to school for. This is what you have destined yourself to do, and that is chasing monsters. Is this a lifelong dream you're living? 
Absolutely. I mean, the world's such an exciting place and there are so many things left to discover. Uh, I, I went to school for marine bio because I wanted answers to questions that people couldn't tell me. I wanted to find them myself. And marine bio, uh, you know, all the mysterious uh, creatures in the deep sea and all the, the other animals that I wanted to know about led me into the world of cryptozoology because those are animals that we really don't know about. <laughs> And, um, and and aside from that, I was always interested in folklore as well. So my minor in college was uh, philosophy with a cultural anthropology focus. So it was looking at different stories from around the world, from indigenous people and uh, the kind of myths and legends. And that ties directly into cryptozoology as well. You know, it's as, as Darren Nash said, it's kind of the, uh, the melding of biology and folklore and finding, you know, and, and anthropology and kind of finding where those meet. You know, we call that cryptozoology. Uh, you know what? This is a subject that I kind of fell into after having my own Sasquatch experience back in 2013 where I was, uh, me and my friend were within a hundred feet of two of them. And, and I'll tell you, I fell in love with it. I always felt they existed, but the fact that I actually got to see one and in that case two, it was uh, pretty amazing because when you see something that large in front of you, that a is not supposed to exist and B is only of legend, the size and the sheer mass of it, like, even just talking to you, you know, I can see perfectly the entire right profile, the color of the hair, the the back profile it gave me as it walked away, the fact that there was no neck and there was this giant cone-shaped head on top of it. It never looked at me, man. I wanted to see the face, and I still haven't really seen the face. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it so changes a, a, you. A, Absolutely. A, a friend of mine, Jeremy Holden, um, described his sighting of a ring pendek as something that absolutely changed the course of his life. He was kind of bouncing all around the world, uh, fo- like Southeast Asia primarily, but he was bouncing all around just photographing different animals. He was just you know, looking to get as many cool shots of wildlife as he could, kind of no real place to call home, just bouncing around doing his thing as a young man. And um, he had heard these stories about a ring pendek and didn't, yeah, it would be cool. It would be cool to see whatever. And then he, without looking for one, happened across one. And he said it was like time froze. Like he could still remember every single aspect, every detail of that encounter. And he said that, you know, it, it almost brought tears to his eyes. It was just something so different. And it, it, it changed the entire trajectory of his life. It really does. I mean, the the fact that there are things roaming around our forests that we have no clue. We we don't understand it. And, you know, nature has a, a very funny way of being able to camouflage its creatures from those dirty, dastardly humans. You know, I, I remember one day driving along a logging road with my buddy Mark. And we're going at about 5, 10 miles an hour, not very fast. And he's like, oh, there's a moose. Where? He goes, in the trees right here. Where? It took, he yeah. finally hit the brakes, and it took me about another four or five minutes to actually see the outline of the moose camouflaged by the trees in front. Now, Mark, you know, when you spend 35, 38 years in the forest hunting, you know the signs, you know what to look for. But for the everyday person like myself, you don't know what you're looking for. You're just hoping to oh, see absolutely. something. And even with the best equipment. So we we did this experiment when I was in um, Sumatra. We did an experiment where they set me up 
with uh, two really good cameras and a video camera. Um, they set me up in a tree about you know 15 feet up in this tree. I'm sitting there uh, completely alone. Every, the crew leaves, everybody leaves, and I'm just up there for hours and hours and hours. And my only assignment was take a picture of any animal you see anything. You are ready. I'm sitting with the best cameras that you can imagine, ready, focused, all set and turned on. I got a couple blurry birds. <laughs> That's all that I got. I could hear a troop of gibbons. I heard them going all around me. I heard a million things in the undergrowth. I heard things climbing up the tree that I was in. Couldn't see them. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know, you kind of go against the grain of science in North America where very few scientists really have in investigating the weird, the strange, the unknown, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's, you know, legends of little people from First Nations, whether it's dogman or gnomes or gargoyles or trolls under bridges or even what's flying in the sky. You know, why do you pursue these legends? Like, what's in it for you? I just think it's fascinating. And so my, my whole thing is that I'm not necessarily looking to prove that something is real or that it's not real, but I want to know more about why this legend exists. I want to know what's, what's the, what purpose does this legend have? What is the, what is, what is the story behind the story? And then really look into like what, especially in cryptozoology, what are the known animals in there that we can compare this creature to? You know, what are the things that, that what makes this legend kind of brings it down to earth a little bit and teaches me uh, what I can learn about biology or what I can learn about the region through this story. And it's just fascinating to me. I mean, there, anthropology is fascinating and the, the reasoning behind these legends, the stories, the, the lessons that you can learn from them and the, uh, the indicators of what the society is like because of these legends. Do you believe that any of these creatures truly exist or do you believe that it's a combination of maybe some do exist, but maybe people are seeing things into a different timeline or getting pictures into a different timeline what do you think's going on? Yeah, so I I tend to I love quantum physics. I love learning about it and I love learning all of the different theories about, you know, string theory and multiverse and and different timelines. Um I don't know enough about it to really speak intelligently on that. So I try to root things in biology. The reason why I became a biologist is because they're things that I can hold. These are these are things that I can look at and hold. I did microbiology for a while. I could at least see it a little bit harder to hold. But um, that's what I like is the physical reality of this and then the stories. And I do think absolutely that some cryptids are real. Um, one of my, it's not a problem, but one of the things that I always go back to with cryptozoology is that I am frustrated by the fact that I think people would not be excited unless the animal that's found is exactly like the creature of the stories. Like if we find that a sea serpent legend is describing a completely unique new species of giant squid, I would be thrilled and absolutely ecstatic. But there would be people who would say, no, that's not a sea serpent. That's not what we're talking about. And that's that to me is disappointing. Like I would be really excited to find that a new species of bear that could explain some of the Yeti legends. Like that would be fascinating to me. To me, it doesn't have to be a bipedal, you know, hominin or hominid. Um, 
to be exciting. It's any new species, any new thing that we find or a different behavior of a known species is really exciting to me. I found a cottonmouth, which is, you know, like a water moccasin, about 200 miles north of their, their, uh, their range. Like their accepted range is 200 miles south of where I found one. That was thrilling. That was amazing. I had it confirmed by a herpetologist that this really was. Um, and then I want to know the whole story. Was it brought there by somebody? Was it inadvertently brought in some boat? Was it um, purposely brought there? Was it, is there actually a population there? If so, how did they become established? Like Those are the questions that I want the answers to. Yeah, and, and you see where things are a little bit different here in Canada is in the U.S., you as a scientist have to look at all that, but you also have to look at the fact that there's a lot of people out there who take exotic pets and then forget that these exotic, cute little pets grow. And then they end up dumping them off because they can't afford the food or they can't afford a new cage or, or whatever it may be. You know, so they just dump a snake in the forest or even a tiger. I mean, there's reports of tigers and lions being spotted in American forests in the warmer climates. I mean, sure, absolutely. I mean, I could never imagine what it would be like, you know, looking for Bigfoot one day and all of a sudden you and your buddies get attacked by a tiger or a lion. I mean, that would and, and the or pot- orangutan. And those possibilities are out there in in North America. People think they aren't, but the truth is, with the amount of animals that that get let loose every year by people who own them, think it's cool to have that exotic pet, that, uh, you know, one day it's going to happen. Somebody dies at the hands of a a tiger, orangutan, or whatever in some uh, suburban forest in the U.S., Oh, I, I live in Massachusetts, and every summer there are alligator sightings. And real, the, the, not just sightings, they are proven that they, they have found alligators in Massachusetts for exactly that reason. People have dumped them. Or people have, you know, have them as a pet and decide to let them out for the summer. And then the alligator gets further out than they wanted it to be. Um, but yeah, I've, I've spent quite a few days in Rhode Island and uh, parts of Massachusetts looking for alligators for exactly that reason. i got to ask you. In regards to the creatures that we are talking about, and our audience loves to learn about Sasquatch, Dogman, you know, everything that's kind of mystic about this. In your mind, Pat, from a scientific point of view, which creatures have the best chance of being out there that we haven't learned? Like, I'll tell you an example here. I'm a firm believer that Megalodon, still exists or a form of megalodon uh, exists a good friend of this show max hawthorne who's a who's a author researcher of ocean monsters he believes that there is some sort of super shark out there bigger than a great white but smaller than the megalodon probably in that mm-hmm. f- 35 to 45 feet range that is out there and and leaving its mark, but we haven't had enough evidence yet to actually claim that this is a super shark. You know, what what's your thoughts on some of these monsters? If I throw them out, let's start with Megalodon. Sure. Well, I mean, you look at the whale shark. The whale shark was just discovered in the 70s, in the 1970s. This is, the, the you know, the, the largest shark on Earth. <laughs> and uh, it was just discovered in the 19 or just named, really, in the 1970s. And we've only seen you know, 
I don't know, a couple dozen of them since uh, since the discovery. So you know, th- th- these are, well, I guess now there's some tourism around them. So we've seen quite a few more. But for the first, you know, 20 years, there were not many of them that were being seen. And that that's very, very recent. Um, even the most conservative marine biologists w- would be, it would be very difficult for them to say that there are not still large creatures left to be discovered, particularly in the deep ocean. Um, a large predator like Megalodon, you know, in the 30 foot range, I mean, I think there are absolutely deep water sharks that are yet to be seen. Um, whether it's a relative of Megalodon or not, I'm not 100%, you know, on, I, I wouldn't rule it out. But I would say that, um, you know, a 30 foot shark, I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibilities by any means, especially if it's a deep water thing. Well, I like mean, the Greenland shark or something like that, yeah. you know, the sleep, sleeper shark, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, but the fact is, I mean, what have we investigated the ocean? I mean, we, we always hear the, the, the number 5%, maybe 10%. I yeah. think it's probably a little higher than that. But there are areas that we just can't get to due to the depths or due to the location. It would take well, especially the open ocean, just the open ocean in general. Um, the really the only manned, the only people who are ever in the open ocean are passing by on you know shipping vessels, um, and they're not looking for animals. <laughs> so the open ocean is one of the least explored places on Earth, uh, even more so than the depths, and we know next to nothing about the deep oceans. So yeah, the open ocean, when you're talking about in between land masses, hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles offshore, um, there's a ton of stuff that could be out there that that is out there. Um, But in the deep, almost every expedition that goes into the deep ocean is finding new species all the time. They may not be giant new species, but they are finding, you know, a lot of new species in the in the depths. All right, um, and yeah, it's pretty tough. I, I took a three-man sub a thousand feet underwater, just out by you, off the coast of uh, yeah, Vancouver, no. and it was wild. It was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life, and that's a thousand feet. You know, that's nothing compared to some of the trenches, and it was a completely different world, completely unique world. And the person who owned the sub said that they have seen things that they couldn't explain. They've seen, you know, a, a thre- they saw a seven a seven gill. A shark. They saw um, a thresher. They saw uh, a couple squid species that they couldn't identify. Um, I think there's absolutely new species of giant squid that we haven't identified yet. Yes. Do you think the kraken is out there? So the kraken is is one that I, I really am interested in. That was kind of what got me into crypto or into biology, really, when I was a little kid was, uh, you know, learning about the kraken and then seeing the giant squid. And the kraken, so I, I could be mistaken here. Darren uh, Nash is really the expert on this one, but uh, the the historical legends of the Kraken going back to Greek and Roman times, I believe it described almost in a living island. Like this was not really the description of the the painting that you classically see, which is the giant octopus, but the original Kraken was more like a living island. And then that got combined with stories of giant octopus to become the Kraken legend that we think of today, which is explained with the giant squid. Um, So that's a very long way of saying, I don't think the living island exists, but I do think that the giant octopus and giant squid are real. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? The ocean is like we said, filled with, all sorts of mysteries that haven't come through yet. Let's go land bases. We only got about 90 seconds sure. left. Let's start with Bigfoot. 
It, so it, it's, it's one of the questions that I always get asked. And unfortunately, I have to be on the fence about it. I, I just haven't done enough of the research myself. Um, when I was up in British Columbia, I spoke with some of the uh, some of the First Nations up there who told me some um, amazing stories. And I also really appreciate Dr. Meldrum's work and uh, all the work that, that he does and that um, Cliff Barackman and they're, they're people that I really respect who are absolutely in the believers camp. And I put some weight in that. I put stock in that. I look at, I can't rule it out. See, for me, I, I'm a total believer in Sasquatch. Total, You've seen it. I, so, I, yeah, I've seen absolutely. three now. I've seen three now. And the footprints, you know, when you're walking in the middle of nowhere in the forest, and that's literally where we go. And all of a yeah. sudden you come across a, a couple tracks with toes and and dermal ridges and and everything that goes along with it, you know that there's not a moose making that, you know, or or a grizzly bear or a black bear, you know, and on my phone here, when we found the the most recent tracks in October, we actually found a grizzly bear track and a black bear track right near it. And it's very obvious to see the difference between something that looks like a human foot, except multi multiple layers larger and you know the uh the big claws of a grizzly bear you know dug into the mud it's sure, very, very obvious my friend i'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going to go to break here at the bottom of the hour we are talking monsters and legends all night long with pat spain biologist author researcher television guy great hair connoisseur it's going to be a fun uh, conversation tonight with Pat. When we come back, we'll get into Dogman. We'll get into the legends. And how can we tell if something is actually plausible or just a story? We'll be back right after this. All right. We are clear, my friend. We are clear. Cool. Good start. Good yeah, start. no, this is awesome. Thank you. The hair, I really, I really, I would have, I would have, could have, should have gotten a haircut. <laughs> ah, don't worry about the hair, man. Don't worry about the hair. It's what it's all about. High quality yeah. hair and rock and roll, man, and monsters. Yeah. That's what we try and do around here. Absolutely, man. So yeah, I've seen the, uh, you know, throwing up the horns, talking about rock and roll. What, what's, what's your musical taste? Oh, it's metal. Uh, I'm a I'm a hard right. rock metal guy, and right, uh, good. thank goodness my nine year old son is a metalhead as well. He's into the more heavier stuff than I am. He's more that's in, awesome. Yeah, he's more into like Slipknot and Pantera, and not that I wasn't into Pantera, but uh, he likes his Slipknot, and uh, he just experiments with music. Love it. That's you never awesome. go wrong with that. I, I'm I'm a punk guy. For uh, for years and Perfect. years, I was in a punk band in high school, and uh, my my daughter, when she was about six, I was so excited. She was screaming, "Spray paint the walls!" and singing some Black Flag. Nice, like, right. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I took my uh, son this year uh, to his first rock concert. Uh, we went and saw uh, Avatar. They're from Sweden. I, uh, okay, and just. They're brilliant. They were ab- awesome. absolutely brilliant. And it, it was really kind of cool because uh, this big hulking dude, you know, uh, fully tattooed, 
uh, he, he, you know, we get a, like, it was in a real small venue. And so my boy and I and my, and my partner were on the floor and this big hulking dude way up in front, he's like, Hey you. And he points at me and I'm like, yeah. He's like, is this your boy's first concert? I'm like, yeah. Trade spots with me. You know? So we That's got, awesome. so we go right to the fence. Right. And That's awesome. what was really cool was the avatar singer was literally coming right up to my boy, but he came up about four or five times to the show and he bent right down, you know, while the band's playing, he'd take the microphone down and be like, Hey little buddy, you having a good time? And all this, are, are you okay? Like totally checking on my son, right? My son, really my cool. son would be like, woo, you know? Yeah. And then uh, the guitarist after the show, uh, his name's Tim, one of the guitarists. And uh, after the show, uh, it was weird because like during the show, he really didn't pay attention to my boy. Uh, but after the show, he came right down on stage and he got right on his knees. Hey, little man, saw you. You know, did you really like the show? Did you have fun? And he's like throwing guitar picks at my boy. And, oh, and so cool. my, my son was so tired by that time. Like he did. He, oh, yeah. he has no recollection of it even happening. Right. So, <laughs> man, uh, that's a great first experience. Though. I'll, what I'll a, what show a good you the introduction. I, I got to give the dad brag here. I'll show you this. here. Oh, yeah. Hold on a second. Let me find it. All right. And where is it here? All right, here it is. Uh, this, this is my son. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, he's going to throw the horns up here in a second. There he goes. <laughs> there you go. Nice. <laughs> he was just pumped. He was just pumped. He wants to see Metallica too. He loves Metallica. All right, yeah. So, you know, trying to trying to make it. You know, he doesn't like country music, which is good. If his mother <laughs> if his mother puts on country music, he gives her hell. You know, which is which is uh, in my mind okay. And uh, you know, it's just the way it is. That's very cool. Yeah, man. How many kids do you have? Two. Oh, very nice. Four and eight. Oh, nice. Very nice. No, it's a lot of fun. Those are the fun ages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. I I say that I, you know, before, uh, before COVID, I was a I was a generalist. I knew a little bit about most species around the world. And since COVID, I've become a specialist on everything in my backyard. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I bet. You can break I've down. Been, I've the been worm. out there every day with the kids. You can break down the worm population like nothing now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Every species of salamander. I know the life cycles of all of the moths in our in our area. Nice. It's, Very it's nice. Pretty awesome. My daughter wants to be an entomologist. Excellent. So she and I, yeah, she and I have raised a whole bunch of different moths. We've actually ordered some really crazy exotic species and. Uh, we raised atlas moths, which are the biggest ones in the world. They're they're wild. Um, a whole bunch of different types of luna moth and some pretty cool stuff. We've got ones now that we're really excited about for the spring. Um, we found some polyphemus moth cocoons outside, and we've got some uh, comet moths. Very cool. That'll happen this spring. I'm going to get you to hold on right there. We're going to come back hey, in eight yeah, seconds. Definitely. Thank you to Scowling Greg O'Brien, Darren, W. David Page, and Louie for the super chats. Here we go.
second half hour of Space Out Radio is now underway. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. want to remind you that if you've missed portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor. Hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go. Biologist Pat Spain with us. Monsters, legends, folklore, you name it, he's investigating it, and he is writing about it to find out what is really going on on this awesome planet that we call Earth. Pat, thank you so much for joining us, my man. Thanks for having me. All right. We we asked you about Bigfoot. You think Bigfoot might exist. What about you hear these legends and stories of, of werewolves like Dogman or, or trolls hiding under bridges or, or Thunderbirds still flying in the sky? What do you think's going on? So so Dogman and werewolves, uh, Linda Godfrey, I have to say, was one was one of my favorite people in the, in the entire community. And that, that was such an awful, such awful news a few weeks ago to hear about her passing. She was just a wonderful woman and a, a wealth of information and so generous with her time oh, yeah. um, as well. And uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I love all the, the journalism that she did and all the writing that she did about Dogmen. I do tend to find that most of the... I can't I can't say 100% but I do tend to find that most of them are mistaken identity. A lot of the times it's people seeing a known a known animal and kind of misinterpreting it or you're in a heightened state of awareness. A lot of times when you're seeing something at night, you're already a little bit nervous, you're already a little bit on edge. Um no judgments here at all, but a lot of the sightings um that I found when I was out at a uh, uh what's it called? Uh Bray Road. A lot of the sightings out there, there were um People coming back from bars, I'll say, in a nice way. Makes <laughs> um, sense. But I, I, yeah, but I mean, I absolutely think that there that people are seeing something. Um, I would have a tougher time with anything that kind of gets into the the world where it's breaking the the what we know about biology. Um, you know, something that's that's metamorphosizing before your eyes, something that's changing. I just I don't see any other. I don't see any type of life that has that ability to do those kind of things. So I think that people are seeing something, but I'd have a tough time going with uh, something like a, a werewolf or a dog man. Right. You, you know, the fact is, though, people are seeing some things. They are. Sure. Whether it's UFOs, yep. whether it's aliens, whether it's gnomes or, or Bigfoot or dog man. And, and yes, it is easy to misconstrue what you're seeing at any time, whether it's daytime or nighttime, you know, Absolutely. And, and, you know, but the amount of sightings is what I, I wonder about at times. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I've seen a lot of weird stuff, man. I mean, you, you could sit down with me and you'd be like, is this guy sane? Is this guy have a sense of reality to him? You know, I mean, literally, I've had people say that and uh, people question it, and people should. People should, you know, because we got to know if what's being said is actually genuine or whether it's, you know, Memorex, you know. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, and I think everybody, though, it, for the majority of people out there, they don't want these encounters. 
They don't want to see them, right. and it affects them. The way it affects them is something that science has yet to figure out. And yeah. that, that I think, tells me personally – you know, that there is a reality to this and you're not denying that you're just saying you haven't seen yeah. the evidence of it. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's exactly it. And and it's interesting. You mentioned aliens. I just had that conversation with my daughter today. Um, she was, and I think I gave her an answer that she was not expecting at all, which is always so much fun with kids. <laughs> so she, uh, there was a huge storm coming in and I made the joke and I said, do you guys see that out there? So what do, what do you think that is? And uh, she's like, I don't know. I was like, do you think it's aliens? And she goes, there's no aliens. I went, what do you mean there's no aliens? And she said, well, that's just a story. And I was like, I said, I think that it would be much more unlikely that there isn't other life in the, in the universe than if there is. And she went, what? <laughs> and we talked about that for the next 45 minutes. I said, so you really think there are aliens out there? I said, yeah. I don't know whether they've ever visited Earth. I don't know anything about that, but I absolutely think that there is life outside of our our planet, for sure. And she was amazed, and that that was really fun. Yeah, I mean, that is... Uh... That is great. And, you know, like I, I talk pretty openly about my son about this. Like every time I go out, I, I bring my son with me because I want yeah. him to see things. Like when he saw that Sasquatch with us last year in October, you know, he was he was pumped up about it. He, That's he, amazing. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, nine years old, he gets to see one. And the fact is, got to see one with the old man, too. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just just the way it is. But I mean. Getting back to the creatures that exist, I've always wondered, and I know you brought up the quantum physics side here a little bit, but one of the things that I have always said is this. There's a reality, there's the story, and I tend to believe, and maybe it's just me, maybe I'm being superficial because I'm not a scientist. I know nothing about science. But it to me, a lot of these creatures that people are seeing I don't buy it. I don't buy that there's a 40-foot Thunderbird. That would be picked up on radar. Okay? And never mind that. And I'll use this. It's a gross example, but I'll use this. We would see painted trees, painted houses, painted cars from their feces. You're 100% Uh, correct. Yeah. And we're not talking little droppings. We're talking buckets. A bird that size is going to drop buckets of poop. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that that, that is a valid reason to say that, th- that this is mo- almost certainly not there. Um, and I, I would go to say, yes, I, I do not believe that there are Thunderbirds there for that reason. And um, it would be seen. It's one of those like a, a, a giant animal that's flying. And it's very, very difficult for people to estimate size against something like the water or a sky. Um, and, you know, I have had people who have seen a, um, a blue heron around us in Massachusetts and sworn up and down that it had a 20-foot wingspan. Had to have a 20-foot wingspan. Had to. Had to be at least that. And they don't. <laughs> I mean, that's not uh, – it's, it's just one of those things. And they're, they're not lying. They're not trying to – you know, they're not even trying to exaggerate. They really, truly believe that that's how big this was. Mm-hmm. And you see California condors, and you see them, you know, against the sky, or you're trying to judge the size, and it's really difficult to do that. Well, so, yeah. 
See, I d- but here's my difference between you. I think people are seeing them. Okay. okay. But what I think is happening is I think this planet has a bunch of beautiful hidden secrets where okay. all of a sudden at certain times a door to the past will open. And that's why we're seeing people having reports of of pterodactyls still flying along the coastlines between Texas, British Columbia, and New Zealand and all the islands in between. I I believe maybe that's why people are are claiming that they're still seeing uh monsters like raptors and and miniature T-Rexes in the forests of Louisiana and Texas. You know, I don't think a lot of these people are wrong. I'm just wondering if they are even maybe skipping into a different dimension or looking into a previous timeline. Impossible to prove, but it's just a wonderment that I can't get out of my head because it actually makes sense. It's very Fordian. It's very Fordian. I mean, Charles Ford had the the Super Sargasso Sea, and that was, you know, his his ultimate uh, place of hidden things and hidden creatures and believed that, you know, doors to the Super Sargasso Sea would open and close and things would pop through for a short time before going back to the uh, to the super to, to this, you know, that he just termed the Super Sargasso Sea as a way to encompass, you know, uh, the, the other some other place. And that was really before, um, you know, string theory and before all the different quantum physics that started to show, you know, potential multiverses and things. So he was a bit ahead of his time, didn't have it exactly uh, the way that that physics have shown. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's it's tough for me to, to speak on it without knowing enough about it. But um, I tend to focus more on biology. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand that. But I mean, you, you with this, though, even though you are focused in a discipline, you do still have to have an open mind. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, no, I mean, I, I, I will follow where the evidence leads. What about, sure. what about sea monsters? Yeah. I think that almost anything is possible in the ocean. It's so unexplored and there, there's so much left to find. Um, so the thing, so I, I kind of break this down a lot in, uh, in the book on Caddy and talk all about the different types of sea monsters and what, you know, potentially is out there. And I think that the most likely the the large animals that are left to be found in, in the deep ocean will not be too dissimilar from the ones that exist. I think that they'll, that we will find them and that there'll be new species of shark, new species of whale, new species of squid. Um, but I don't see a completely unique new type of creature that's totally unique to science right now in 2023. Um, will it shock me if it happens? No, <laughs> but uh, because it's the deep ocean and there's so many um, just unusual things that we do know about there. So I think that there, there is every likelihood that we find something, something unique, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, even even really conservative marine biologists will say there are still squid left to find. There are still sharks left to find. There are, you know, potentially even pinnipeds, even, you know, seals and walruses and sea lions. Well, you, we seem to find about three or four new species of frog every year. So, oh, yeah. Well, amphibians, for sure. There's there's dozens, if not hundreds left to, left to find in, uh, in some of the some of the biodiversity hotspots. Unfortunately, they might be gone before we have the chance to find them in a lot of places. Things like Chitrid and, uh, 
you know, the fungus that's, uh, that's killing off a lot of the amphibians and uh, just changes in their environment. What about something like Mokili Mbembe in the middle of the Congo forest where there is a dinosaur that is said to be still roaming around like a miniature brontosaurus, you know? In I, went, I went there looking for him. And did you find evidence? So what I found was um, there, one of the books is about uh, is about Mokeli Mbembe and about the, the adventures that I got into in, in West Africa. Um, and what I found is that Mokeli Mbembe is one of the perfect examples of a story that makes a lot of sense. It makes sense uh, because this the, uh, the the tribes that we were living with the Baka and the Bayaka pygmy tribes um, they really value toughness and bravery. This is like an extreme trait. They they file their teeth to points. They have facial uh, scarification and facial tattooing uh, to to look more um, animalistic and to show how tough and strong they are. And you have to be very very tough in this tribe. And if you don't want to go down to the river at night because there are crocodiles, then you're weak. If you don't want to go out fishing because the rapids are too strong today, then you're weak. But if you don't want to go down to the river at night because Mokele and Bembe has been spotted, that's smart. You shouldn't. If you're not going into this area of rapids because of Mokele and Bembe, that's smart. That's respected. It's almost a cultural out. It's a cultural way to to not take on a, a, a truly dangerous activity and be accepted by the by the group as saying that this is a good move. It's not weak. Okay. So I, I, that's a, it's a long way of saying I did not find any evidence of a true surviving dinosaur. And I think that that would be pushing it beyond what I'd be comfortable with to say that something of that size and something with, uh, with, with that, something that had the, the physical characteristics of that could have survived the, uh, the extinction event that the dinosaurs saw. Now, sure, tons of species survived the extinction event. Um, horseshoe crabs, velvet worms, lots of different trees. You know, there, there's a lot of things that we have that are older, that are still alive today, that are older than dinosaurs. But Mokele and Bembe, um, most of the characteristics that we have of it are describe, describe what we thought we knew about dinosaur biology in the 1920s when this was first being, you know, being identified by the West, and that we now know that sauropods did not behave in that way. We know sauropods didn't hang out in swamps. We know sauropods were not loners. We know sauropods didn't swim. We know, um, you know, what they did and didn't eat and how they behaved, and that's not the way that Mokele and Bembe is described. Mokele and Bembe is described how we thought sauropods acted in the 1920s. Okay, so the idea that that there is this legend of a dinosaur that people are allegedly seeing whether it's sure. footprints or or trees being ravaged or or seeing the creature itself how long were you in country to to actually investigate this because you know oh oh, oh yeah no I, I so i i i know exactly where you're going and yeah i i will freely admit to that that you know, um, one of the one of the things that I always say is that if you really want to know, you know, and I learned this from a marine biology professor years ago. They said if you really want to know about an animal, don't talk to the scientists. Talk, you know, you want to know about this was in the in the water. Talk to a fisherman. Talk to someone who's there every day. And when I was investigating orang pendek, um, one of the guides that we were with said the only people who don't believe in orang pendek are the people who've never been to my forest. 
And you're like, all right, that's fair. I was in, I was in West Africa for 14 days, 14 or 15 days. It was not enough to make an assessment and to say that there's nothing behind these stories. But my experience there showed me that with, uh, I didn't make it to Lake Telly. That's where a lot of the sightings are. But I do, I have a friend who did make it to Lake Telly and, and experienced the same things as me. And what I found is that a lot of the stories that we heard about McKelly and Bembe um, have been have been sort of changed since their original accounts and are a lot of it to get people to meet with them and give gifts and participate in this kind of, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty tough life there. And this is a way to have tourists come in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. Let's go from Africa to the northern reaches of Russia, because I think if one creature is still around that is allegedly extinct and not that long ago, I think there is a good chance that there could be small pockets of woolly mammoths still around. Yeah, I I would agree. So I saw that footage a few years ago that turned out to be computer generated, but I bought in. I was like, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, Yeah, I would I would agree with that, that I, I, I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibilities, especially when we know, you know, island dwarfism, um, when, when a species becomes isolated, a lot of times they shrink. Uh, we know that on uh, Flores in, uh, in, what's it called? Flores in Indonesia, there were pygmy elephants. There were tiny elephants that lived there. So we do know that the, the bloodline has the ability to shrink. Um, why couldn't that apply to mammoths? Why couldn't there be surviving mammoths? Uh, I, I would, I would absolutely say that that is that's possible. I think that there's probably, up until very recent times at least, uh, surviving thylacines as well. I, I would agree with that, and I'm, I'm actually trying to track down someone who uh, just went on a 10 day thylacine investigation and in Australia, and I'm trying to get him on the show. And awesome, you know, there's another one that I I would totally believe is still out there. And, and, you know, I mean, now we're seeing trail cam footage of them starting to pop back up. We're seeing uh, uh, house cameras, security cameras starting to catch them. You know, I think there is something out there. But the one thing about that, that northern reaches of Russia, you know, we know those areas are not habitable. And yeah. there may be some some clans of, of uh, Russian First Nation people who live up in those areas, okay, that seem to believe that this creature is still there. I mean, but when you look at the forest and the tundra and everything, you know, most people in North America don't even realize, and even most Canadians don't even realize, that there are muskox up north. Oh, yeah. Okay, you never hear about it because all you hear is polar bear, seals, and narwhals. That's it. Right. Right? But they yeah. don't understand. And even narwhals were legends for years. Yeah. But the but muskox, I mean, that's almost yeah. a 2,000-pound pissed-off bull. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you wouldn't want to mess with them. But, yeah, I, I, I would absolutely. I, I would go also and say that uh, the Mopinguari, I do believe that there could be that there likely is um, remnant populations of giant ground sloth. I believe that I heard one when I was in Brazil. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was in Brazil investigating the Mapinguari and uh, my, my theory behind it. So um, I was able to hear this creation myth 
from one of the um, one of the indigenous groups that we were living with. And the creation myth essentially says that all creatures on earth, including humans, are made of this one material. We're all made of clay. And that's why we can eat other animals and why we can digest other animals. The exception is the Mapinguari. The Mapinguari is made of wood and it is other. It is different than us. It, it should not be tampered with by us. It should not be, you, you shouldn't mess with it. And the whole thing is if you ever hear one, if you hear a Mapinguari, you have to leave that area and never go back. So these are um, uncontacted tribes, tribes that are protected by the Brazilian government where you can't go into a region where, where they live, you know, for fear of disease transmission and, you know, other terrible things. And I 100% support and agree with that. Taking a step a little bit closer to, um, you know, uh, uh, to the cities, there's the lightly contacted tribes that you need to get special permission for. You need to have a health exam. That's who we met with. Um, and this group believes that as well, as do the uncontacted tribes from what we know from the exchange talking to them. Now, if this entire region has groups of indigenous people, you know, Westerners are not allowed in there. Um, nobody can go in there. And this group of people have creation myths from throughout their entire history, where if you hear this creature, you have to leave the region. They've essentially created nature preserves for this animal. Because now uh, giant ground sloths were hunted to extinction by humans. And if in this one region of the world, they weren't because of this creation myth where they're creating these nature preserves, why couldn't they still be there right now? And, I, I really think that we heard one. And the fact that, that, you know, a lot of these areas are still so untapped. Like we think we have a good grasp of what's happening on this planet as we got about 90 seconds to go before we go to break at the top of the hour. I mean, how much of a grasp do we really have on, say, a place like the Amazon or the northern reaches of Russia or even North America for that part? I mean, we always think, well, we haven't really seen what's in the ocean, but how about land? Oh, for sure. There's, there's a ton of space that we haven't seen, especially in areas that are difficult to traverse, you know, swampy areas, really, really cold regions that are heavily forested um, that you're not going to see from, you know, an aerial survey. And um, yeah, some of the some of the desert places as well, like the Gobi Desert and things like that. So yeah, no, we, we there's still a lot of places that we haven't been, you know, I say that the I kind of equate it to there are places that I've gone that are considered really remote, but I wouldn't be surprised to find a cigarette butt on the ground. Then there are places that I've gone that are truly remote where I might be one of, you know, the first 10 people who have ever put a footprint where I'm walking right now. And I might be less than, you know, 200 people that have ever been even in this region. Um, and there's still a lot of those places. Yeah, you, and and a lot of them. Go ahead. When when the indigenous people have a have a, a creation myth or some kind of legend to to prevent them from going to a region, you know, maybe there's a spiritual connection with a mountain, and that's the reason why they don't climb the mountain. And Westerners don't go there because the indigenous peoples are protected. You're setting up a nature preserve. That's very true. Pat, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going to go to break here at the top of the hour. In hour number two, we're going to bring in some audience questions as well as we, you know, move into the second hour with you. We always like to get our audience involved in the conversation. 
and we're going to talk more monsters, more legends. Every small town, every big city has its own legends. We'll get into some of those when we return with researcher, biologist, author, Pat Spain. We'll be back on Spaced Out Radio with Hour 2 next. Stay tuned. I'm so thrilled you said yes to the woolly mammoth. Yeah. <clears throat> Genuinely. Um, we, we do know, as I said, pygmy elephants. Um, we found yes. their bones and everything in, in that island and in a couple other places as well. So we know that it's that they are a species that could experience um, island dwarfism. Um, elephants are, well, elephants are descended from woolly mammoths. So woolly mammoths for sure would have had that ability as well, I would think. And they could have gotten smaller and could still be up there. It's a very sparsely, if at all, populated region. And uh, the indigenous people are telling them, telling us that, that they're seeing them. Absolutely. I, mean, I don't discount that. Absolutely. My friend, I'm going to put you back in the green room. I'm going to take a quick break here. We've got about five minutes here. So to our audience, we'll be right back with Pat Spain and myself. And uh, we'll be uh, just give us a couple minutes here. Okay. Be right back.
right. I am back. We'll bring Pat back in. Oh, he's eating, so we'll leave him in there right now. <coughs> Hello, everybody. All right. Oh. Eating a sandwich there or something? <laughs> Shrimp cheese. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. A little, little bit of protein. Hey, no, it goes a long way. Just seeing if anybody's entered our chat room that we can say hello to. Oh, I've said hello to everybody. I always like to make sure that I say hello to everybody in our chat room. That's awesome. Hey, man. Yeah, least, snacks, least snacks I, are always the key. You know what? It's <laughs> a, it's the least I can do. I mean, these are people who take time out of their evening to spend with us. And, hmm. you know, have to do it. Have to. <coughs> hmm. We got about 45 seconds. Hi, Noble Patrick and uh, Big Tex. How you doing, buddy? And let's see here. It matches my eyes, Kira. Matches my eyes. Blue is your color, Dave. Big thank you to Pam, Scowling, Greg O'Brien, Darren, D W. David Page, and Louie for the super chats tonight. Yeah, very much appreciate the love and support. Hi, Rex Goodrum and Silent Listen. How you doing? And uh, don't forget, guys, we want you in Vegas, May 19th to 21st. Check the ticker below. Make sure you book in soon that you are coming because we want you there. Thank you. Here we go. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Hour number two of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live at KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio do old Davy the favor hit that subscribe button the desert clam has set the password for tonight in the sor space travelers club a clog a clog is your password use it wisely space travelers as the clam sets the password each and every night right here on spaced out radio our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go. Hour number two with Patrick Spain, author, researcher, lecturer, and a man who loves a good legend. He's a legend tripper. He is someone who will travel the world looking for the monsters that are among us. Pat, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're glad you're here, man. We are glad you're here. You know, one of the things that I absolutely detest about all of these ghost shows and what monster shows you see on TV, they always go to the same monsters. It's the same stories with the same hauntings, and it's and it's usually the same crew under a different titled show each and every time, man. But you know, one of the things that I that intrigues me about this field is that there are so many. If we focus just on North America, there are so many towns 
and cities in North America that have legends that people don't even have a clue of unless you're a part of that community. It could be the crocodiles in the sewers of New York that majority of New Yorkers have never heard of, or it might be a small town in the northern reaches of Canada that literally gets plagued by monster sightings, whatever it may be, Dogman, Bigfoot, or, or whatever. I mean, to me, as our metropolises get bigger, and more spread out, we have a chance of losing a lot of these legends because nobody is investigating them. Nobody is really looking into these amazing stories. I mean, are we about to lose a lot of these legends because mankind or humanity is is growing in its epicenters? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we, we, we do lose a part of our culture with that when, we, when we're... You- you know, you do have these regional differences that seem to get less and less. I can remember even going to grocery stores that were an hour away from us and finding completely unique things that you, you know, and that's not really the case anymore. Now I drive across the country, I go across the entire country and you stop at, you know, you're going to find pretty much the same thing in every grocery store. And that's kind of sad. I mean, I do miss that, um, you know, that, that sense of discovery. And that's something that, you know, this particular dessert is uh, the only town that you can find it in is here because it was invented by this person in the 20s and we sell it every year at our fair. And you just get less and less of that as we kind of, yeah, grow, grow and spread and, you know, people aren't staying in their hometowns. I'm, a, I'm an example of that. I grew up in upstate New York. I now live in Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, I think we do lose something there. And, uh, you know, growing up I in uh, Winanskill, New York, so a really small little town in upstate New York, we had Snidey. Snidey was our local monster at Snyder's Lake. And it was supposedly a giant snapping turtle that would come up and get you. And, uh, you know, if you tried to swim across the lake, like you, you wouldn't do that because of Snidey. And I was a lifeguard on that lake for many years. And I, I did see some pretty big snapping turtles. I never saw one the size that Snidey was supposed to be. But uh, but I love that. I love that that was something that only people in that very small town would know about. And uh, it would be sad. I hope that kids up there now are still telling the story of Snidey. Everyone who goes to camp, everyone who's uh, you know swimming at Snyder's Lake, I hope they're telling that story. But I don't know if they are anymore. You know, I, I remember just a few months ago, I was talking to these two First Nations gentlemen and they were from way up north in a, in a town called Fort St. John, which is, you know, up in the upper reaches of the British Columbia east of my province. And they were talking about, or I was telling them a story about uh, a report that I got from a gentleman about a dogman sighting that he had within like 15 feet of him. Mm-hmm. And they, they were like, no, we've never heard of dogman stories up there. But they said, have you ever heard of the green men? And I'm like, what are the green men? He goes, well, around our reserve at night, we are told not to go outside. And especially wandering around the forest or or the trails, because there are these green men that are lizard-like people that will come and take you. And they're not very nice uh, of a creature. And I'm like... Like, that's what the stuff that I want. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's that's where I want to head to in order to see one of these, you know? And and stories like that 
are all over the place. You know, Absolutely. I mean, you, you get some of these towns, whether it's in Pennsylvania or right across the U.S. or Canada, where there's, you know, been these, you know, in the 1800s where the mines collapsed and, and dozens of people passed away. But yet people still travel to the entrance of that mine and could hear the people yelling for help. You know, yeah. we're not investigating those, though. We're not taking yeah. that time. Is it because society doesn't have time for that anymore or is it that we don't have an interest i don't think it's the latter because everybody likes a good story absolutely yeah i I don't think it's the latter i think that it's um a lot of people immediately write it off if it sounds unusual or they, they just equate it oh that's just an urban legend and they kind of forget about it or it really is just the towns as you said spreading out and just people not kind of carrying on and telling these anymore or not not knowing about them i think about gravity hills so uh i mean you know you know gravity hills all across the the north america you hear about these and in my town there was supposedly one and it took a lot of convincing to get one of the older teenagers to try to tell us where this was. And I really, I grew up thinking that this was just a thing for our town. And it wasn't until I went to college in Boston when I found, you know, 10 other people who had one of these in their town as well. And then, um, and nobody, not a single one of the people who were telling the story had ever bothered to look up the veracity of it. So, and this is pre-internet. So I, I think that's the other thing is now you hear the story, you Google it, you get an answer that is is acceptable in your mind and you move on. And whether that answer is right or not is a completely different thing. You know, not everything on the Internet is correct. <laughs> so Truth. So so that that's kind of the thing was that, you know, the, the gravity, gravity hills and, you know, the, all of those things that, that you hear people talk about. Um, there is an explanation for that in most cases. But is that true of the one that was in my town? I don't know. I know there was a gravity hill in my town. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And when you were growing up, did you think that it was the only one? I did. I totally right. did. So did I. Yeah. yeah. What other legends? I love that. What other legends have you checked out that you were just intrigued by uh, oh man i mean so all of the ones that i filmed <laughs> those were all my ideas so uh i went to you know sumatra for orang pendek uh brazil for the mapinguari i went uh i i did film in loch ness uh that wasn't ever aired i filmed a pilot up there in loch ness that was phenomenal and really really interesting and such a beautiful part of the world um I did the Beast of Bray Road. I thought that was a really fascinating one and wanted to check that out. Um, when I was really little, I would have sworn to you that I saw Bigfoot in my backyard, but it was, in fact, my uncle <laughs> <laughs> walking through there. <laughs> but, I mean, Big, Bigfoot's the one that got me. It, it, Bigfoot and the the, um, the giant squid were really the two things when I was little that were the most intriguing to me. They were the ones that I wanted to know the most about. And as I got older, I did move more towards the giant squid to get into marine bio. But um, anytime I hear something interesting, I want to check out more about it. I mean, there's... I, I usually have at least three books that I'm reading. I have, you know, a, 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 a fiction, just kind of a fun like fiction story, I have something on philosophy and I have something on science. And they're usually the more unusual aspects of that. I just finished a really amazing book on human evolution 
that just immediately started clicking in my mind of this could be, you know, this could be stories of Bigfoot, this could be stories of Orangpendek, this particular early hominid species could explain some of the aspects of, you know, these descriptions from Vietnam of rock apes. And yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the way that my mind works. (laughs) Do you believe then that a lot of these legends that you have investigated are just that stories from townspeople or that have been passed on through generations, or is there enough evidence out there to show that there is plausibility? Yeah. So both, (laughs) the short answer is both. Um, There, there is definitely an aspect of, um, storytelling and uh, culture that plays into a lot of these myths and a lot of these legends and a lot of these stories. I mean, even the story of Jack the Ripper that, that definitely happened has become so sensationalized over time and has become so embedded that there are things that we think are a fact about some of these murders that, that really aren't. And, you know, we have no way of absolutely knowing that this was done, this was perpetuated by one person. Like, we we don't know that. Uh, Even the name Jack the Ripper was, you know, invented in the press. Um, So, yes, uh, a lot of these legends, a lot of these myths um, have an aspect to that. But there is a grain of truth at all of them. There's something that this is based on. And and that interests me as a biologist of what is the grain of truth? What is the thing that, that could be, you know, bringing this myth, uh, why are we still talking about this? Why are people still investigating this? Why don't we have a um, acceptable answer to explain all of these yet? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there there are definitely unknown animals that, are, that we need to find. Um, and I think there are some creatures that will do some pretty amazing things that we haven't identified yet. You know, they're I, I always say there's, um, what is it, like 60,000 weevils for every one platypus, but it doesn't mean that the platypus isn't real. <laughs> it wa- is there. I want to shift gears here for a minute with you because in in British Columbia here, I've always you know been fortunate enough throughout my adult years to deal with a lot of First Nations people. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to a lot of the stories, a lot of the legends, whether it's of spirit, whether it's of of uh, stories about Sasquatch or or other creatures that may roam the forests or or the waterways, and I look at that and I and I think, okay, these are people who are so in touch with the land and so in touch with nature that we just can't use the uh, as like I like to call it the Caucasian Christian science background that we know everything and you're just you're just a primitive uh history that you're going off of i don't believe that okay i do believe that there is a lot more to that have you taken the time to investigate a lot of first nations legends and and stories to see uh, the if there is a lot of truth that can correlate to the science Absolutely. So that that was the basis for Beast Hunter, the show that I did on Nat Geo, was that um, the indigenous people of a region know what they're talking about. And that it's extremely ethnocentric to, to write off a sighting of something just because it was not done by a Western scientist. 
Um, and that really came about because the, the head of Icon Films, who's the production company that I work with, he had an experience early in his career where he was in, uh, in Nepal and uh, investigating sightings of the Yeti. And one of the guides just told him flat out, um, you, you Westerners will never believe in an animal until a white person's given it a funny name. And that really made him stop in his tracks and have to rethink you know, rethink this this kind of method that we go about and what we do. And I had a very similar experience in Sumatra. I had someone say, you know, how offensive it is that people would, you know, why would someone believe a Western scientist over um, a First Nations, an indigenous person? And they are 100% correct. I'm not going to tell anyone that what they're seeing is wrong or that they're, um, or that they're, they're lying. You know, that's, that's, yeah, it, it just feels very wrong of me for people to think that way and to think that there's any more validity in a Western scientist seeing something than, than an indigenous person. Um, so yeah, I absolutely put a huge amount of stock and credibility in those stories. Um, where I do like to dig a little bit deeper is ask the question about the sighting and say, was this in the spirit world? Or is this a physical creature? Because that can get you a little bit further. And that's where I do draw the line. Not, not I don't draw the line, but that is where I kind of put on my biologist hat rather than my anthropo- anthropology and say, okay, if this is a physical creature, we can talk about physical real animals. Like um, in Sumatra, Areng Pindek is looked at as um, normal. Like a lot of the people that I spoke with um, were really amazed that we even wanted to talk about orang pendek because they put a lot of spiritual properties on tigers so it would be like oh yeah no orang pendek yeah it's like you know he he walks upright it's kind of monkey like kind of human like he's out there don't worry about it what do you want to know about tigers i'm like no tigers are really cool but tell me more about orang pendek they're like no no you got to understand tigers are amazing <laughs> orang pendek is just one of the creatures that's in the forest he might not be there anymore. They might be extinct. A lot of animals have gone extinct. But let me tell you about tigers. So, like, they were fascinated that I even wanted to know about this animal because they just consider it just like, you know, tapirs or, you know, sun bears or anything else that's out there. No, I, Not that tapirs are in South, Southeast Asia, but yeah. Tapirs are weird-looking things. Yeah, they're in South America. But, uh, yeah, they are very weird-looking. <laughs> I, I do, have, and the reason why I bring that up is because when it comes to Sasquatch, a lot of First Nations people believe, at least on the West Coast here of North America, that they are either shapeshifters or interdimensional type beings. There's a very spiritual aspect to these right. creatures. And yet you look at the BFRO or you look at other groups out there who think we're looking for the North American great ape, some sort of monkey or some sort of uh, gigantopithecus type creature. Yet I I have my doubts about that because the storylines of what many people have seen from pixelation to to you know watching the creature walking through the snow and vanishing there's all sorts of stories like that granted no mm-hmm. physical evidence just anecdotal you know are we missing out on something by not paying attention to what first nations people are saying about this and maybe that's the reason why we haven't proven the existence cuz we haven't got a I body don't think yet it's- 
Right. I, I don't. I don't think it's not paying attention. I think it's realizing the not limitations, but realizing the separation between investigating biology and investigating spirituality. And I think that that's where I don't have the tools to investigate a spiritual belief. Um, I do have the tools to investigate biology. So I think that once we start talking about an animal in the spirit world, I ran into this with um, aspects of the Mapinguari as well. So there was um, some groups in Brazil that would describe the Mapinguari as you, you, your eyes had to be opened to the forest in order to see it. Like it could be standing right in front of you. And if you were an outsider, you wouldn't be able to see it. And those kinds of stories, as interesting and as fascinating as, as I find them from an anthropological perspective and from a culture perspective, as a biologist, I can investigate that. Um, I, I'm, I want to know more about it. I want to learn about it. But once we start talking to people who are describing a flesh and blood creature and I start piecing that together with those legends and seeing like what aspect of the real animal clouded this legend or created this legend, um, then it starts to make sense. You know, the, the story of the Mapinguari's cry killing you is what you would hear in big cities. But then when you talk to people who are the, the loosely, the lightly contacted tribes who live near the region, it's not that the cry will kill you, but it's just if you hear the cry, you have to leave that. You have to leave your home. You have to leave your village. You have to move your entire people away from that area, which is almost a death. That is like a death. And that's so that's what I find interesting is, you know, tying the stories, like taking into account the story, listening to it, you know, not necessarily believing the literalness of it, but taking it in and listening and then using that to apply it to biology. See, this is where I have a, a problem with the BFRO is I know researchers with the BFRO, good friends of this show who have had them edit their reports and 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 not only edit sometimes sometimes not even use the reports so when i look at a group like the bfro who is supposed to be the trusted voice of the bigfoot world their numbers are skewed their num because somebody had a ufo encounter with a sasquatch or somebody saw a ghost or orbs or or uh, little people running around with that i mean you can't eliminate evidence just because you don't believe in it that's not scientific well, yeah. right yeah no i mean you, you take in all the evidence you take in all the evidence that you can and document all of it everything the good the bad and the ugly <laughs> and we learn from that but so much uh, the problem that we have with these creatures is we got about 90 seconds here to go the problem that we have and i'm wondering how you deal with it is a lot of these creatures do come with a paranormal background Mm -hmm. So how do you use real science in order to investigate a pseudoscience? Well, so I, I tend to be interested in the paranormal aspect of it, but recognize the fact that I'm not going to be able to measure anything about this. So I try to see what's the reality, what's the, the biology that could have influenced and led to these paranormal type stories. You know, with the, the snake that I mentioned earlier in Mongolia, coiling up and springing and shooting through a camel and impaling people. Okay, well, what can I take as a biologist from that? Well, it must strike really fast. 
So, and it does. This is a very, very fast striking snake. Okay, how do you, and then I would ask, where do you see evidence of this? You know, how do you know that this is what happened? Well, we would come across people, you know, who would be dead on their, um, on their horse or on their camel, and there would be a hole through the camel, and then this person would be bleeding. And you go, okay, well, where would the hole be? And they'd show you, and you go, okay, that could be either the gas escaping from the stomach once the once the animal has died and it's bloated in the in the Gobi Desert sun, or that could be carrion feeders coming and eating. You know, they're they're pointing right over a particular organ that carrion feeders would go to. And you're going, okay, so I can take this kind of paranormal story and tie it back to real biology. So you can learn from it for sure. Oh, hundred percent. That's how I approach it. Hundred percent, you could. 100% you could learn. Uh, Pat, I'm going to get you to hold on right there because we are going sure. to get to some audience questions when we return on Spaced Out Radio. we got a few good ones here for you lining up. Pat Spain, author, researcher, lecturer, television, babyface, when it comes to the monsters among us. We're going to continue with your questions. And we got Pat until the top of the hour. This is a great show tonight. Talking everything weird and strange. We love it on Spaced Out Radio because this is what we do. We'll be right back. Are you having fun? Yeah, absolutely. This is great. Good. Good. That's the main thing. Very cool. No, it is. There are so many interesting things in the world. I think it's, it's, it would be boring and really, uh, you know, conceited of us to think that we know everything. <laughs> See, what screwed me up personally with Sasquatch mm-hmm. is there's been a couple of instances. Number one, um, after I had that encounter with my buddy in, in, in his forest behind his house, uh, uh, f- about 10 days later, we used to do what we call perimeter walks around their 10 acres. They had, dude, if I could have bought this property, uh, it was like a mini E-SETI ranch. I would have science, scientific stuff set up all over it. I mean, I had a U- I witnessed a UFO landing there, uh, aliens in the forest, like literally aliens in the forest. Uh, the The property was completely haunted. Uh, you know, you'd you'd sta- you'd stand outside, and we don't have lightning bugs here. Okay, mm-hmm. you would stand outside, and you would see orange, blue, green, red, little orbs of light popping up all through the trees, and like fairies. I mean, just everything. And this one night, four of us were doing this perimeter walk around the property, and the property kind of sunk down into a level and there was blackberry bushes that were probably 12 feet high. And below that was a little incline that kind of fell into a a small little pond. Mm -hmm. And we're walking along this pond and all of a sudden, you know, up high and we hear like somebody taking a two by four to the, to the pond, just smash, smash on water. Like when something big hits water, dude, there's no beavers up on a mountain. Okay, at the top of a mountain yeah. to make that kind of splash. So we were like, okay, well, maybe the Sasquatch is around. Let's back it on up. So we walk probably another couple hundred feet, get to the side of the house, and I fe- I had this feeling like we were being followed. 
And I turned back, looked towards the back of the house. I got this big, giant cherry tree that's probably 60, 70 years old. And the bark is all black, just a beautiful cherry tree. And right beside the cherry tree, from the ground up, I see this pixelation standing there. And only one other of the three people could see the pixelation. And it was standing from ground to about 8, 10 feet up. And I'm like, come on, you can't see that? They're like, no, I don't see anything. And the other two were getting frustrated. So they turned to go back to continue walking to the front of the house. And I walk with them. We get to the front of the house. And right from that area where the cherry tree was, we got roared at. Oh, wow. Now, this is only a couple hundred feet away. And, dude, it four of us ran as fast as we could to get into the house. And like, we yeah. were right there. Like we're not talking, this thing was like a mixture of a lion's roar mixed with a rabbit getting ripped apart, man. Okay. And yeah. it, and it went on for probably five, eight seconds. Ten, I mean, it seems forever, but five, eight, oh, seven, right, right, right. five yeah. to eight seconds is actually a long amount of time. It is to hear something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that pixelation matched up with what a lot of First Nations people had said about the creature being able to either be interdimensional or, or a shapeshifter to me. So that's why I'm not very convinced that we're dealing with something that is truly flesh and blood. And then tw- fast forward to 2018 when I've now moved up here and we're investigating this crash site of an airplane and... We take this trail, my buddy Mark, myself, and my buddy Merle, and Merle and I walk across this meadow, and we start getting talked to. Like, right out of it, dude, it, it was, I didn't realize till about Sierra eight months. Sounds. It, I didn't realize till about eight months later that it was the same sounds as we were hearing at the Sierra Sounds. Okay, and that's, yeah. and that's 2,200 miles away. Okay. That's wild. Yeah, and this creature snuck up right behind my buddy Merle by about 15, 20 feet. Oh, Man. it was nuts. It was nuts. I love the theory that the Sierra sounds were um, mimicking human speech patterns, mm-hmm. that it was, that this was the animals trying to, yeah, just, just mimic, just like as if, you know, my, my kids yeah. and I go outside and do barred owl calls all I'll, the time. I'll tell you a story at the next oh, yeah. break about that. Uh, we got about 10 seconds. Thank you, Thomas, Susie, Louis times two, Pan times two, Scotland, Greg O'Brien, Darren, and W. David Page for the super chats. Here we go with the next half hour, everyone. Past the halfway point of Spaced Out Radio tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate turning your listening ears. I want to remind you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you 
Rock out Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Final time tonight, we say hello to Patrick Spain, TV presenter, monster hunter, author, scholar, biologist, just a handsome young dude here on the show. He goes around chasing monsters around the world. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for being with us tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. This is awesome. I want to get to some audience questions here uh, because I love including them. The dude we call the crypto guru around here, Ronald Murphy, is asking, what are your beliefs or theories on fairies and the possibility of elementals? Yeah, so um, I mean the 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 classic fairy as a small flying humanid uh, hominid, uh, I I would have a, a tough time with. Um, but the kind of interpretations of other animals as you know going into this and the the legends behind them, um, I always find really really interesting. You know, when we're talking about the spiritual aspect of it or the representations of a, uh, a wild forest or of the, um, the power that is, you know, in a um, English countryside, that, that kind of thing. And that's usually what I associate with, uh, with fairies are, are in Great Britain and, uh, and the surrounding kind of areas of Europe. Um, I have a tough time with it as a real creature, but as a story, um, I think that they're, Excellent. Um, elementals. I'm a little less familiar with that. Do you mean like the the spirit of different, um, like like a water elemental, something that's kind of the the embodiment of water, the embodiment of fire, the embodiment of wind? Is that? Yeah, that's pretty much what he's talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, I I, I do love those legends, but I do separate them from biology. Oh my goodness! All right. Well, let's uh, continue on here with another question. This one coming from Marty, who is asking, do you think that the Orang Pendek could be another Flores or Luzon Hobbit? Yes, um, definitely. So I went into the investigation of Orang Pendek thinking that it was a misidentification of an orangutan. And I know you're not supposed to have preconceived notions when you go into an investigation. So I was willing to suspend that disbelief and I I was wrong. Um, I left it definitely uh, not thinking that it is a mistaken identity for an orangutan. And I think that uh, Lauren Coleman gets it. um, You know, he, he gives a good explanation that there's likely a couple different species that people are describing when they talk about orangpindek and uh, likely one is more of a ground, uh, a, a type of gibbon that has evolved to be more on the ground uh, and more nocturnal. Um, and another is the, the hominid type species like, uh, like Homo floresiensis or um, any of the, the other early hominids that we know from the regions in Southeast Asia. Um, talking to Mike Mavretic, who is the, the, the gentleman who discovered Homo floresiensis, I was able to sit down and, and speak with him. Um, interestingly, both of us were pretty sick on the day that we met, and it turned out that both of us had cancer at the time that we met and uh, didn't know it. Neither of us knew it for a little while. Um, unfortunately, Mike did not make it through uh, through his experience with that. But he was an amazing man. And he said that he had, uh, he had evidence that was not 
publishable. So he did not have enough evidence, but he did have evidence that Flores, um, Homo floresiensis, or similar species did survive up until the 1920s. And he said that he would believe with no, he would believe very easily that there were still um, hominid species living on some of the islands in Indonesia. Really? And I have absolutely no reason to doubt him. And, um, and the, it, it fits in perfectly with, uh, with the, the stories that you hear from, from folks around there. Imagine how many of those islands that are uninhabited still have weird creatures on there. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of islands. I mean, you look at a map, you can't see them. But oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, like I yeah, had, and, and- I had no idea, like somewhere in the, in the Indian Ocean, there's an island there where there's a specific type of, of iguana that grows. And yeah. they, they call it Lizard Island because you're not allowed there. It's a preserve. You're not allowed there. And they've got like like a, like a four different species. That's that's the only place they live is on this I, giant island. And, oh, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. amazing. And it's easier to get a film crew into parts of Indonesia than it is a scientific expedition. So that was the other thing that Mike uh, told us, is that he said that it's extremely difficult to launch a scientific expedition for political reasons. Um, There's a lot of, you know, I I won't go into any of the politics of it, but there there are, um, it is easier to get a film crew in there. And that he had some really, he considered them credible stories of uh, lizards that are larger than Komodo dragons on some of the islands that he was, uh, he he was willing to direct us to some of those. Yeah. Really? See, the only Island that I wouldn't go to is somewhere around that Indonesia area. They have a snake Island where the, like some of the world's most venomous snakes uh, live there. And it's, it's home to like 40 or 50,000 plus snakes. Yeah. Yeah, So that's, there's a few, there's a few snake islands around the world. Amazingly. I am not. One of my best friends, one of my best friends genuinely just sent me a link to that about three hours ago and said, Hey Pat, let's go here. No, <laughs> but no, but he's, it, it's one in Brazil. And the thing is, um, so the snake that can kill you the fastest is a constrictor. Um, venomous snakes. There, there is no two step snake. There's no snake that kills you in five minutes from a bite from a venomous snake. And um, the snake Island in Brazil that was estimated to have, you know, one snake per square foot or something. It turns out that the population is actually much, much, much lower than what they thought. And they're, they're just very large lance, lance head vipers um, in that one. The one in Indonesia, there, there are a good amount of Russell's vipers on a couple of the islands, but not anything like the concentration that people say. The largest concentration of snakes on Earth is in Manitoba, Canada. Really? Yeah, I went there. It's uh, it, it's uh, the the Narcisse Snake Dens uh, in Manitoba, Canada. I drove there from Boston, and there's about two hundred thousand garter snakes in uh, in these these pits that are about the size of you know a living room, and it's just a sea of snakes. I mean, I laid down in the middle of it and just got absolutely covered. You had nope. feet of snakes. You could reach your arm in and just let them roll down your arms nope. like water. Nope. <laughs> The smell I will tell was you, the most overwhelming part of it. I will tell you a true story from a couple of years ago. My buddy Mike, who's a pretty hulking guy, okay, and myself, we were out cutting firewood. And as we were uh, throwing the logs, 
to towards the vehicles and we're taking the logs down putting them on tailgate and then putting them in the back of the truck there was this two and a half foot garter snake that that decided that it you know i mean its head was maybe you know the size of a dime if that half a dime but we had to leave had to leave i mean i almost had to burn this forest down right there because of the gosh darn snakes don't eat them don't need them no way, man. So w- one of my books is 200,000 Snakes, and that, that's the, 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 the title of it. And it's about going to Manitoba, Canada and doing that, laying down in the, the pit of snakes and just being absolutely covered. <laughs> yeah, it, it was wild. No. Um, the smell was so bad. It was me and two of my buddies. When I got back to Boston, I had to sell my car because it was just never going to smell right again. <laughs> no, see, that's just wrong. There's no need for that. No need. It was so overwhelming. Like your your brain really we as humans, we have a hard time processing swarms, right? Swarms of anything, a big group of any animal. We have a hard time processing that. When it's snakes, it just takes it to a whole nother dimension. Like the the sounds, the sights, the smells, and just like you forget what they are. You're just like reaching in. And I mean, I had them, they were going in my shirt, down my pants, in my boots, like crawling through my hair, crawling over my face, like just thousands and thousands of snakes nope nope i was playing in manitoba a, i was playing in a baseball game in Kelowna, british columbia back in my radio days and i got invited hey come on we're all going out to play some two pitch okay fine I'll, I'll head out there guy right before me hits a home run ball goes over the fence this uh, young lad says oh, i'll go get the ball Comes back with no ball because the rattlesnakes right behind right field were in a giant ball rolling around all horny from the heat and, and everything that was sure. going on. Yeah, not going there. Not going there. No way. I got hissed at by by a uh, an albino python. I stood in its cage one day, you know, when I was yeah. in broadcasting school. And we're doing a story on the reptile farm. Okay, and this albino, about 15-foot albino python gave me a hiss. That was enough. That was enough. Looked at me, like I said, I, I know exactly what it was thinking. Hey, Dave, come on over. You're a meal. Let, let, me, let, me, nah. let me just squeeze you a little bit. Just a little There's bit. There's no get some snake of on earth that would be able to eat you. <laughs> let me get, an anaconda could take me down. An anaconda. They could take you down. They, they wouldn't eat you, and they wouldn't. Anacondas are, they're, they're not that bad. I've worked with a bunch of anacondas. Yeah. They're, you know, reticulated pythons, if they're raised in captivity, they're okay. In the wild, they can be pretty feisty. But, your, um, your obituary needs to read, Dave told you so. Okay? That's all I I'm used saying. To, I used to volunteer. I used to volunteer at a reptile place called New England Reptile Distributors, or NERD, N-E-R-D. And I loved this place. Um, I was working with some of the most dangerous reptiles in the world for a full day. And I ended up in the hospital that day, not because of any of the animals, because I tripped over my own feet and hit my head on their cage. I had to get staples in my head from that one. Nope. Nope. No need. Let's get to another. I've been working. Let's get to another audience question. Let's go to Brown Dwarf here. Do you believe the footage of the Orang Pendek is legit? Uh, so I have never seen footage that, um, that I felt was, com- that, that was, you know, truly compelling. 
of the of the Orangpin deck. Um, I've seen some brief glimpses that you know could be OP. It could be a Gibbon. It could be an Orangutan. Um, it's really hard to see some some grainy footage. I don't consider that evidence of absence though that absence of evidence i don't consider that evidence i mean i i did that experiment i tried to get good pictures of known species myself and couldn't do it so um if there's specific footage of it I, i'd be interested to to take a look and is it homo floresiensis um i think that there is most likely two different types of animals that we have not found in Indonesia. One that is more likely a ground, a ground dwelling gibbon or a, a gibbon that spends more time on the ground, you know, and has evolved into a different species and uh, something that is more like Homo floresiensis. All right, let's get to another question. This comes from Super Duke at World Bigfoot Radio. How about the Mongolian, the Mongolian death worm? worm. The greatest name in all of cryptozoology. Yes. <laughs> for sure. There needs to be a metal band that's called the Mongolian Death Worm. Very true. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the stories of the Death Worm. I loved being in the Gobi and really experiencing that. I think that there is um, the largest species of lizard in Mongolia was just found in the 70s. So, and, and the Mongolian deathworm isn't supposed to be a massive creature. It's supposed to be about a foot and a half to uh, to two feet long. So I do, and what I found with the nomadic herders that we lived with in the Gobi is that they are very unfamiliar with anything that lives underground, anything that burrows. I found a um, a mole cricket, you know, just a, a little mole cricket. Um, they're they're a pretty weird looking animal if you've ever if you've never seen one. Their front legs have been modified to look like kind of digging claws, like it looks like a mole's claws in the front. And they do this thing called stridulation, where they get into a hole and they rub their legs together, and it sounds like they're singing, like not just like a regular cricket chirping. This really has a very unusual sound to it. And I found it and got really excited. I didn't know they lived in Mongolia. And all of our guides freaked out. They were like, you need to put that back. I said, why? What is it? They said, we don't know, but it looks wrong. (laughs) I just do not touch that. Put that back. And I could see them right there starting to um, make up legends about this. Because the stridulation that it did, um, they said, I think it can give you an electric shock. Because you could feel it. If you put your hands on the sand near it, you could feel it. It was like, no, it doesn't, it can't give you an electric shock. And I talked to them about how it was sound waves. And they were like, yeah, no, you should put that back. So I think that a lot of the, um, and there was a lot of other stories. I'm not just basing my analysis on this one example, but the whole time that I was there, this happened again and again and again. I think that the stories about the death worm are likely a, um, a known or unknown species of either snake or lizard or possibly some kind of grub something that would that would be burrowing underground something you know like a not a hercules beetle but the equivalent in that region of the world a a very large beetle that would have a big grub underground and then the super traits of the death worm have been kind of extrapolated from the real traits of this animal very interesting very interesting we only have about seven and a half minutes left with you tonight i mean this has flown on by my man flown on i love this stuff (laughs) yeah hey we all do we all do let's let's look at the next 10 years where Mm -hmm. if people have an interest in in wondering where are we going to find these creatures 
What's your top three in the next 10 years that have the possibility of being discovered? Uh, the deep ocean, for sure. So, so many things in the deep ocean. I think that the the most likely story or the most likely animal behind a uh, sea serpent sighting is a, is a new species of squid. So I do think that we'll discover a new species of squid, um, deep sea giant, you know, very large squid. Um, the thylacine, I think that there is a very good chance that we will find good evidence for a thylacine. And I think the best way to go about that one is eDNA. Um, I am so excited about the, the new possibilities that eDNA presents. So environmental DNA, where you can take a water sample and find every species that's used that stream in the last you know month or something crazy like that. Um, and we're getting even better with that all the time and growing our species list based on that. So I think uh, eDNA is the best way to go about the thylacine hunt. And then um, potentially orangutan deck. I mean, if we can't find, I, I do believe that there, there, if there are, are any live, they are aging out and dying off very quickly because a lot of the region where they've been spotted, a lot of the places where they're found has been so segmented for um, rubber plantations and palm oil plantations. And I saw that when I was there and I know that that is continuing now. And uh, the way that OP is described is it, it doesn't have a home that it's always a wanderer and that it needs really large swaths of forest. And people would say, my grandparents saw more of them than my parents did. And my parents saw more of them than my generation has. So, and, and they said, what, what was really concerning to me was that no one that I spoke with had ever seen a young one. They had only seen older ones. And they said their parents and grandparents would describe seeing young and seeing, you know, uh, groups of them. But they said, we've only seen, you know, one or two wandering on their own. So I think if there are any there, it would be, now would be the time, the only time we have left to find them. A lot of people in the cryptid world tend, and I should have asked you this earlier and not with five minutes to go, but a lot of people in the cryptid world here in North America believe that the Smithsonian is covering a lot of these creatures up like Sasquatch, and that, that they have bodies over the years of giants, which could be Sasquatch, could be some other creature, hiding in their in their uh, hallowed uh, halls and, and storage areas. Do, do you believe that maybe we do have the bodies of a Sasquatch, but we just don't want to prove its existence? No, so I don't believe that there's any cover up. I don't believe that they're purposely covering them up. But I do think that there is every possibility that there are bones or other relics that exist in a collection that have not been categorized. There was a man whose name I can't remember right now, but he named hundreds of new species just by going into places like the Smithsonian and other, uh, you know, really well-established uh, collections, going back through all of their collections and just finding how many of these things had either been mislabeled or had never been actually identified. So I don't believe there's any purposeful cover-up, but I do think that there's a good chance to identify new species just based on doing exactly what this person did. And I really do believe that it was hundreds of them. Um, with the with the cover up thing, so I was very fortunate to give a uh, a speech at NASA a few years ago, and that was phenomenal. Just such a cool experience to get to do, and part of that was to get to spend a good amount of time with the director of um, 
of NASA Ames. So his name is Pete Ward, really, really nice guy. And I got to, you know, have a kind of half hour of just me, my wife and him just chatting. And he answered a bunch of questions and asked me a bunch of questions. And it was really fun. And at the end, he was like, is there anything else that you'd like to know? And I was like, I can't leave NASA without asking you. And he looked at me and goes, aliens? I was like, yeah, yeah, aliens. He's like, I'll tell you what I tell other people. If I had evidence of aliens that I was holding on to, I would never have to ask for a budget again. I'd never have to go in front of Congress and justify my budget. And I and I will tell you, uh, and I will tell and I will tell you right now, everybody at NASA is lying right now. Everybody <laughs> at NASA is lying. It is my biggest pet peeve in the entire UFO community right now because they are lying through their teeth. There is a plethora of evidence to show that they are lying, and I would love to go through that with you one day. Because it has blown my mind. It has blown I my just, mind. I just, I, I just loved the answer that I would never have to. I would never have to argue for my budget again if I was holding this over people's heads. And I was like, ah, it's sad, sad that that makes sense. That that is how the world works. Well, you know what? I think the big reason why a lot of the people don't trust, like with Bigfoot, if we if we end it on Bigfoot here, sure, sure. is. If Sasquatch does exist, which I do believe it does, there's a lot of money on the line that maybe in today's dollars people can't afford. Logging companies losing millions of dollars in timber, uh, shutting down of tourism for hiking, fishing and camping, mining another one because they will shut down the area for years because they have to find out the the hybrid uh the the patterns of hibernation food sources water sources they're going to investigate the entire area that's the problem we have it's big money loss yeah i mean i've i've heard i've heard that argument before um there are endangered species there are a lot of other species where there are still ways to ways to log ways to do other things around around them so i'm not i'm not convinced that there is a purposeful hiding of any evidence whether there's an accidental hiding of that hiding of evidence i could uh i also think that it's very hard it would be very very difficult to keep a secret like that uh to keep enough people to have enough people agree to or you know forced into silence on something like that but Stranger things have happened. I mean, I did I did a, an episode of Legend Hunter on uh, conspiracies, and did uh, M, you know we talked about MK Ultra, and if someone had told me about that, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have said, no, there's no way that that really happened, but it did. It absolutely Very much did. did. Well, Pat. So yeah, I will say this: the only th- the only question mark I have about you tonight is buying the NASA story, and you shouldn't have brought <laughs> you shouldn't have brought that up with under three minutes to go. Because that I'm that sorry, is that I'm is completely sorry. my pet peeve, but nonetheless, I just, I just meant it as as a kind of funny little aside. But I want to say thank you, Pat Spain, for coming on Spaced Out thank Radio so tonight. What an absolute pleasure! And uh, we'll definitely bring you back very very soon. Coming up next, we're going to head to the swamp. Then our resident Timbit is here for the UFO report. Spaced Out Radio Hour Three is next.
if you watch a documentary on for free on Tubi or whatever it's called, Secret Space UFO, uh, mm-hmm. a friend of ours, Darcy Weir, put it together, and it's about the astronauts who encountered UFOs while on Gemini and Mercury. He hasn't even touched uh, Apollo yet. It will blow your mind. Excellent. It, it will blow. And this is actual uh, actual recordings from NASA with the astronauts speaking about being followed. I mean, this X-15 pilot, test pilot, was literally at 314,500 feet and watching a craft follow him out his window. I mean, it's I'd cr- love to check it out. It's crazy. No, I mean, a- aliens intrigue me. I mean, yeah, I'm very, very interested in finding out more. And that's why I did ask him. I asked, you know, when, when I had the opportunity, yeah. I figured I couldn't leave without asking. Well, the million-dollar question of what's going on right now, in my opinion, is when Bill Nelson, the executive director, stood up in last summer and said, hey, we got to get into this UFO game uh, for no reason. He had no reason mm-hmm. to do it, but he did. Not a single journalist has asked him, Bill, what's in your closet? You're the number one space agency in the world. What's in your closet? And nobody to this day has asked him that. And it baffles me because that's terrible journalism. But that's for another day. My friend, I will let you go because it's uh, 2 in the morning where you are. Let's let's chat soon. And anytime you want to come back to BC, man, we'll take you out in the forest. Thank you so much. I would love that. Take care. Have a good one. Pat Spain, everybody. What a great guy. Great guy. We're going to bring him on again. We have to. Uh, I'll be right back, and then we'll get to some Swampy.
All right. Big thank you tonight to Louie times two, Pam times two, W. David Page, Darren, Greg, uh, a.k.a. Scowling Greg O'Brien, Susie B., Thomas. Thank you so much for the Super Chats. It's a great way to support what we do on this show on a nightly basis. And uh, if you haven't yet already, I cannot stress hard enough how important it is to get your information for our Las Vegas fan party into info at spacedoutradio.com. It's right below on the ticker, info at spacedoutradio.com. Let Cat know if you just want a regular ticket or a VIP ticket because we got to start taking names and uh, seeing how many people were, are going to be showing up. So if you could do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, here we go, everyone, with the third hour. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Here we go with the third and final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club, Eclog. Eclog is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as the clam says the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. It is time once again where we head to the swamp. Our resident swamp dweller takes us on another spooky journey. Hi, Spaced Out Radio listeners. This is Swamp Dweller. It's time for your nightly dose of spookiness on the show. If you have an interesting encounter or a spooky story that you would like to share, be sure to submit them in at swampdweller.net. You can also find our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash swampdwellerreads. Now, let's chill out, relax, and together, let's enter the swamp. I was very hesitant to send this encounter in, but people should know what happened to me on November 1st of 2022. My backcountry camping trip was underway as I left my home in South Carolina and ventured towards the western portion of North Carolina to a place called Linville Gorge. This was a solo trip. I had planned for about a year or so, so to stay for a few days on the Forest Service Road leading to Wiseman's View, a series of overlooks displaying the Linville Wilderness, Table Rock Mountain, and Hawksville Mountain, I wanted to avoid going as I had a few spooky encounters in those areas in the past. Nonetheless, my goal was to enjoy the freedom and solitude of the mountains. The drive up was uneventful but long and drawn out, putting my time into the evening hours and about an hour of light left to set up camp. As I made my way along the service road, I noticed no other campers or hikers at any of the many trailheads or pull-off campsites. This was very odd because the area saw quite a bit of traffic. My decision to camp began to dwindle as my mind wandered and I decided to press on to the overlook area. 
I pulled into the overlooked parking area and again there wasn't a single soul around. I parked my car, gathered a few things, and readied myself for the short hike. There were only 30 to 15 minutes left of light in the dimming sky. I made my way into the footpath, turning my headlamp on. Wiseman's view has three staircases that lead you down and onto the cliffside, but it was the one to the far right that I decided to view from. I clicked the power button on my headlamp, turned it off, standing in silence and watching. After about 10 minutes or so, I noticed there were no sounds around me. The wind was blowing, but there was no other sound. I thought this was very strange, but dismissed it entirely as I saw what appeared to be a star rising from the gorge, flickering and moving upward slowly. It was not a drone, a plane, or any naturally made light. Then I am hit with this extreme feeling of being watched, confused, and the light quickly shoots over the top of me, pulsating and changing colors. I can hear a voice shout for me to run, so I fumbled a bit grabbing at my handgun, taking the safety off of it and wielding it in my right hand. With my left, clicking on the power button to illuminate my escape route with my headlamp. I keep hearing this voice yelling at me, over and over again, to run. As I'm running towards my car, there's this odd humming sound. It's not emanating from where I was at the overlook. Then it becomes almost like this whale-like groan. It sounded like the earth was splitting apart and I was shaken to my core. The sounds stop and all goes quiet as I glance up and around, looking for the star-like object, but the sky is empty and still. I unlock my door, rip it open, and dive into my driver's seat. Then I am enveloped in the brightest white light from all directions. I then wake up in my car hours later the following day. The strangest thing of all this is what happened to those hours that the light occurred and I blacked out, but also what was resting in my left hand, a cold, hard, quartz crystal. Not your typical formation. Still, I was absolutely mind blown. It was beautifully formed. Entirely optical and clear quality. Flawless. Was I abducted? Was it the military? Interdimensional beings? What happened to me? And where did the lost time in this crystal come from? Thanks, Swamp Dweller. I still have the crystal and made it into a pendant I wear daily. And that's why we love the Swamp Dweller around here taking us to new depths of spookiness each and every Monday through Friday night to kick off hour number three of this show. If you love stories like that, he's got thousands of them for free. Just go to his YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Swamp Dweller Reads. Check it on out, hit subscribe, and enjoy the stories. From the swamp to the stars, it's been a busy, busy couple of days for little Timmy Senor and the UFO Report. Let's get right to it. Nobody's going to know. They're going to know. And here we go with little Timmy Senor in the UFO report. Man, 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 man. Uh, fire what are fire. we what are we talking about tonight a little of this a little of that i guess oh, my, your thoughts my brain is exploding <laughs> over the it's last it's been fun oh the last couple yeah. of days has been quite hectic and you know tim uh you know, I want to say thank you again for being a big and integral part on our uh, UFO panel that we did uh, just to 
kind of break everything down with the report. I mean, it is pretty, pretty amazing. You know, the, the emotion people all over social media are having. Some people are jumping for joy. The majority of people are saying, what again? And then there's a small group are saying, are, are you people stupid? Like you really expected something to come out of this? I mean, having some time now in order to look everything over, how, how are you feeling about it? Well, I've gone over it a couple more times and I'm prying out some nuggets. So, uh, I mean, I, I was happy with it, you know, for what it was. Um, I agree with a lot of what the chatter is, that it's a lot of rehashing of information that we got from the first report. But um, I did find some positive things in there and also some surprises. But a lot of what has come into fruition has been kind of things that have surrounded the report and maybe not directly from the report itself. And so I find that almost as interesting. You know, one of the big things for me has been the amount of people, especially in the political land, how they are cheering on this report, saying, you know, bragging about how many new sightings there were reported, how the whistleblowers are are starting to spill their guts on, on their encounters. And, you know, I'm just not feeling it. I, I actually responded today. And I, w- I want to go over this because I think it's kind of important. And let me go to my tweets and replies here for a second. All right. Where is it here? Come on. Of course, it's never right there when you want it to be there. Uh, Representative Gallagher, okay, uh, made a statement saying the DNI's most recent U- I'm going to call it a UFO report because I don't use UAP. The DNI's most recent UFO report reinforces what we already know, that we must figure out what our military aviators are observing in our airspace. The whistleblower protections recently passed into law are an essential step forward to solving this decades-long mystery and will ensure that those entrusted with defending America from potential threats have all the required information, historical context, and scientific resources to do so. Now, that is a great comment. It is. It, It really shows to me that Representative Gallagher is taking this very seriously. But that's on the facade of everything, the front face of the facade. So old Davey replies, and of course I haven't had any reply back. Sure. And if that's the case, pardon me, what what did I say here? Um, Let me see here. I said, that's great. And the public benefits how? since everything's behind closed doors. If there really was an issue with UFOs, then wouldn't it behoove the public to know what you, as a representative, know? Touche. Indeed. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, and you obviously see nothing in the unclassified report whatsoever about that. Right. There's absolutely nothing about it. So um, it was interesting to see her make a statement about it. But your rebuttal, uh, absolutely. 
Yeah, where we're not seeing that. And there is a lot of things that are missing from this report, obviously, as well. But um, what did you feel as far as the pulse of, let's say, other governmental officials that you ran along the lines of? Did you see anything else that screamed information to you? Look, to me, it was conjecture. Okay, it was a lot of conjecture. They're going to comment the importance of this. We keep seeing this threat narrative, yet a member of the U.S. Air Force comes out in a press conference yesterday and states, we have had no physical threats, but we're going to continue to call it a threat narrative. And I just wish there would be some truth. Either give us the information that shows what the threat is, or we're going to look at the conspiracy side of it, which is threat narratives equal zeros on a budget. Multiple zeros led by a one, two, three, up to 20, 30. And we're talking billions into the trillions of taxpayer dollars. So what is it? They're talking about everything that surrounds the topic, which is confirmation which is confirmation, but they're not giving enough specifics and details on why they're even doing it, why they're even looking into it. And for me, I'm not even an American citizen. I don't even live in the United States. I'm up here in boring Canada where nothing ever happens. And yet it is very easy to see how the people of the United States, when it comes to UFOs, are getting ripped off. We're, yeah. We we know something's happening. It's it's like going down to the local, uh, you know, you hear the fire alarms go off, and you see a giant blaze happening at a building. And then Chief Wiggum on the side is saying, nothing to see here, nothing to see, nothing's going on. <laughs> Right. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a matching story to that. When I was in broadcasting school back in 1997, way back when, all right, I was covering a fire at my doctor's office. My doctor's office building went up in flames. And as I'm walking to the area where, where the media goes, I come across a, a, a police officer. And I've got my microphone tucked in. I'm not recording or anything like that. And I ask her, hey, do you know where the media goes? She goes around the corner. I said, yeah, not a problem. I said, that's quite a fire, isn't it? And she says to me, this police officer says to me, what fire? I said, have you looked behind you? I said, really? What fire? Have you looked behind you? And I, I just, she's like, what fire? says it again. So I just kept on walking. And that's what we are getting with this. We're told there's don't something happening, but don't look yeah. at it. Don't ask yeah. us questions. We got a whistleblower program going on, but we're not going to tell you who came in. And we'll get into the, we could get into that if you want. We have to get into that. Well, let's let, let's drop the gloves <laughs> and get into that one right now. Let's drop the gloves. Yeah. Well, please, because you had brought up a great point earlier 
um, with the fact that they're so quick to talk about the topic, but then not there's no follow up whatsoever, and that's the disgrace of even bringing the topic up publicly. And so I feel that you know we need to know at least a bit. <clears throat> we need to know names because then at least we can make assumptions of what their story is. We understand what the disclosure or that piece of information will be from that whistleblower. So um, I think at some point we need something other than nothing because just knowing that it's happening is not going to be enough. Now, here's the, the other point that I think I wanted to make was that there needed to be that. Um, and, and this is probably why they don't put the whistleblowers names out for the exact reason that potentially it could muddy the waters of that whistleblower's story. Um, it could potentially put some fear in that whistleblower that there are portions that they shouldn't reveal. Whereas we want complete revelation when it comes to what they have to say. Otherwise, there's really no point. So I understand why we're not getting complete transparency on the whistleblower movement at this point. But I would at least hope if we don't get names, perhaps we'll get some of the information that they do reveal. See, because otherwise we're going to have to make assumptions, please. Here, the here's end. the thing. We don't know how many people are on this list. It could be five. It could be 10. It could be 30. It could be 500. We don't know as a public. They haven't let us know. And unfortunately, due to the lack of journalism, that has been covering this subject, the chances are we're not going to find out how many of these whistleblowers are out there. But here's the thing. There are already people talking that they have come out or been asked to testify as whistleblowers. Robert Salas, who witnessed the nuclear facilities in the 60s and 70s with UFOs turning the rockets on and off. Kevin Day from the USS Nimitz has said publicly that he is going to be going to D.C. to speak as a whistleblower. They're out. They're retired. Okay? They didn't hold any secret type position. Just like most fighter pilots who have seen this didn't really hold any secret type position unless they advanced in their careers beyond flying jets. Why can't we know who they are? If 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 you are testifying in court, the public has a right to know what's happening in that court case. Good point. Okay. And if these people are testifying in front of Congress, unless they have a position where maybe they are a spy, a secret agent of some sort, or their position is so sensitive that... It would harm national security. These pilots, these experiencers or eyewitnesses should be named. Okay, but how do you feel about the repercussions that some of the pilots suffered from their higher-ups when they just attempted to come in contact to give information to the UAP uh, task force? Well, I understand that. Those are current pilots. They have a lot to lose. But let's say you, you, you've been retired for 14 years, okay? Even your days of serving in the National Guard or Reserves is over, unless you choose to. Your your days of, of being able to testify are right on. Why can't we know your name? 
Why can't we, if we, if Kevin Day is already coming out and telling people that he is a whistleblower, why can we not have Kevin Day's name come out or Robert Salas or many others who are already involved in the UFO community one way or another? Why can't we, why can't they confirm that? Okay. Now, if it's somebody, uh, how about Luis Elizondo? He's been all over the UFO world the last five years. Why can't we know if he's testified or Christopher Mellon? Wouldn't it, it help us? I guess what I'm coming down to with the whistleblowers is where is the transparency, Tim? They're talking about this subject publicly without any transparency. There was no transparency on the vehicles that were allegedly unknown, the 170 vehicles uh, or lights or whatever you want to call them that were unknown. We sure as hell heard about the balloons, though. And we heard about the drones. What about the other 170 that were unknown? What'd they look like? How is that going to harm national security? If, if, if somebody comes out and says, yeah, we had these cigar-shaped objects seen flying across the sky from Phoenix to Tucson. How is that going to hurt someone? It's not. And this is the frustration. Where's the transparency? Yeah, and quite honestly, um, reading into the report, I can definitely tell you word for word. It's just saying here that since its establishment in July of 2020, Arrow has formulated and started to leverage a robust analytic process against the unidentified UAP reporting. Once completed... And we'll talk more about that in itself. Once completed, Arrow's final analytic findings will be made available in their quarterly reports to policymakers. Okay, and so the words once completed implies that at some point Arrow will have uh, definitive analytic findings and they will complete their process and we will have uh, a conclusion to their findings, but it says it's going to report quarterly directly to policymakers. And there's no words here of anything being reported to the public. And this is the part in the report where it would be stated. So um, it goes on to characterize all of the UAP. And I think that the, and I'll even continue if you don't mind, uh, because I think it, definitely pertains we, we got one minute so if we if it's a lot we'll have to carry it over why don't you just hit me with your response right here then well i i can do that and then i i do want to hear more about this you know we can easily pick it up my my concern with this is why aren't those reports going to be public what you know you know it's the old saying of that the best hiding place is in plain sight the majority of the Americans, because that's what we're focusing on right now as Americans, have no idea this is happening. They have no idea this report came out because they're too busy with TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and online shopping and selfies to worry about 
an actual report that is opening up right in front of them and nobody's asking questions. It's hiding in plain sight and we're too dumb to do anything about it as society. Tim, we're going to get more on this as we break down the UFO report on Spaced Out Radio. It's a frustrating time in the UFO world. There are some positives, but do the negatives outweigh them? We'll find out with Tim Senor in the UFO report when we return right after this on Spaced Out Radio. All right, we're clear. Hey, Tim, just as a reminder, you haven't done it yet, but this show will air on our radio stations on Monday. So that's why I've been kind of dodging saying yesterday for the report yesterday. So uh, that's why I've said, you know, the last couple of days has been a little busy. So um, if you try and date it, just say a couple days ago. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Uh, Let's say hello to Stephanie Jackson. All right. She says, while people are talking about Harry's book, the UAP is happening now. I wouldn't say dumb, Dave. I would say distracted and naive. Everything takes time. Very good point, Stephanie. Very good point. And uh, Peter Person, how are you? The lovely Amy WC. Thanks for coming back. And I think we are caught up here. Oh, there's D. Swiger. D. Swiger, how are you? Gong Show. When did you sneak in? <clears throat> Ollie, the Crave Dog, Wallet Moth, how are you? Mm-hmm. Good times, man. Good times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, how's the weather? Are you guys still freezing cold up there? No, it's thawing. Nice. It is totally thawing. Good. Don't like it. Good, good. Oh, you, you prefer the cold. You just wanted to stay cold. Not, not at this time of year. I, you know what? The temperature is great, but we need a hell of a lot more snow. Uh, we need yeah. a hell of a lot more snow. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't gotten to go skiing yet, so more snow, the better. Yeah. It would just be better. It would just be. How about Vegas, though? Are you excited for Vegas? Oh my gosh, I am. I am so stoked, buddy. I am pumped up. Thomas Rock, how you doing? You know, I mean, can you imagine how many autographs the scowling Greg O'Brien is going to have to sign (laughs) when he arrives? Yeah, he might have to smile. I will guarantee you, he shows up with no less than five sharpies, (laughs) an array of colors, if you will. Oh yeah. He'll have yeah. gold, silver, black, blue, and red. Love it. Yep. <clears throat> I 
YJ is north of me, and he's like, fog and rain outside right now. It's going to be a nasty, dry summer coming up in low rivers. Yes, indeed, my friend. Yes, indeed. Yep, I can see it right now. Forest fire season is not going to be good. Not going to be good. I Honestly, I am, uh, I am buying a, a trailer this year. I am buying a trailer this year. Because, awesome. Because uh, I, you need something to bug out, and when that when that yeah. call, when that call comes, man, you got to be able to bug out. And uh, it's it's funny because when the forest fires hit, I, Tim, I, I don't know where in Oregon you live, but when the forest fires hit around here, you got yeah to bug out. There's one. <laughs> you got to realize there's only three ways out. You head north to where YJ is. You head south, but that could be blocked by fire. Or you head southeast, which could be blocked by fire. No joke. Yeah. So yeah, it's best Gotta to have a plan B. Yeah. So I, I'm definitely buying a trailer this year. Good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I'd never owned one before I bought this rig, and it's definitely part of my plan B. You know, yeah. I'll just get to McMinnville, and then yeah. I'm home free. Yep. <laughs> Oregon. LOL. Oh, YJ, you're all too right there, buddy. You're all too right. And that's why, you know, every, you know, since 2017 when it happened, uh, I go through our bug out room every year. And make sure we got water, make sure we got, you know, all our supplies. Where's our passports, even the expired ones? Where's our IDs? Where is everything? You have to. Yeah. You have to. Hold on, buddy. We're on in five seconds here. Third, we're heading for home tonight on Spaced Out Radio. My name is Dave Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really do appreciate it. I want to remind you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the news wire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram, Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We continue on with the UFO report with Tim Senor breaking down the UFO report. And Tim, right, yeah. right before the break, we were talking a little bit about transparency that there isn't a lot of transparency going on with this report. They give us a little bit of juice, but they pull a lot away. Uh, you were going to add to that when we came back. Yeah, indeed. And I will just skip to the part where they talk about how they're coordinating. And so Arrow is coordinating with other non-IC agencies, such as the FAA, NASA, and NOAA. 
and other non-IC elements of the Department of Homeland Security and the DOD. And so the broad scope of the authority is granted to Arrow that should enable them to leverage the multi-agency whole government approach to understanding, resolving, and attributing to UFO in the future. And so I would like to kind of point out the fact that NIM Aviation is uh, remaining the IC's focal point for the UFO issue, while Arrow is the DOD's kind of focal point for these issues and related activities. So that draws a couple of question marks, really, for me. And I was kind of hoping to get your response to that. Well, see, this is where I get confused. When it gets into the government agency side with everything, I just get confused. I don't know how to answer that, Tim. I, okay. I mean, I, well, I apologize. I, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so NIM Aviation serves as director of national intelligence's principal advisor on air domain issues. Right. So they basically are um, kind of relating a lot of this stuff to a different office and then collaborating. So it's, it's one of those things where they set up an office that really is just kind of gathering information from other sources, including, by the way, NASA. And so I wanted to highlight the fact that NASA is clearly depicted in this report. And we know that publicly they came out and said that they were going to be putting together a report. And so obviously this is why. And they were clued into this report being necessary. And so now we're looking into why the IC would possibly need to collaborate with another company like NIM. Well, we know that NIM potentially is a company that spies on Americans through our social media and through all sorts of other resources. And so it's, again, collection of data through all resources. And so we may not like some of the answers here, but once we dig in a little deeper, we're starting to see that, hey, they may be looking at us for the answers. And so Dave, we've been saying this kind of all along. And so if we have moles in our community that are listening to what we're talking about or trying to sway topics potentially or get inside information or even people that come out and do podcasts and things like that or come on as guests as podcasts, we just don't know, right, what the true motivation is, especially if they have information that's interesting. Well, we need to vet them, <laughs> right? And I know we've talked about this a few times, but what is your kind of general take on the potential of collaboration with an agency like NIM? Well, knowing that they are, you know, a, a spy agency spying on, you know, their own citizens. It's just one thing they do, but yes. You know, but as long as that's a part of everything, we we got to watch what we say. And look, we know, we know that UFO Twitter is filled with a number of spooks that has been confirmed by a number of people within the ufo community we know that there have been people tipped off and people used to get news out all right that are more supportive of the government narrative over rather than asking a number of questions i mean it was easy to see during the two the stars academy where a show like our size couldn't get an interview but a podcast that showed a rah-rah spirit, cheerleading spirit for the TTSA, but maybe had only a couple hundred followers, was getting Chris Mellon or Hal Putoff or Tom DeLong or Lou Elizondo. We saw that happen numerous times. 
And that's how many of those guys created their own major following. You know, you you go from 300 subscribers up to 10,000 pretty darn quick when you're getting two, three interviews. Okay. And very quickly, I know I breezed over it, but I did name your least favorite four-letter agency there, NASA. And so the fact that they're delivering a report directly potentially to this, um, does that send up red flags? Are you worried about that? Or do you think that they're going to give some good information that's going to help the real UFO topic? Well, I, I, I really do believe that, you know, they are going to be giving what they know. I do believe that. Look, they know in NASA what what they've experienced and what they've seen, what their astronauts have seen. They already know. Okay? The problem is they're not admitting it to the public like everybody else. And that's the sad part. Right, and right. That's I agree with you 100%. Part. Um the only the part that really on the report itself before I move on to the final part, because I know we're running out of time, um, would be the part regarding the health issues that they say here in, in the quote regarding health issues. There are also there have been no encounters with UAP confirmed to contribute directly to adverse health related effects to the observers. But we know that even most recently we've reported on John Burroughs and he has won an award, you know, for getting his health records and I believe some of his health uh, issues looked into and treated. And so that, in my opinion, is an admission that potential radiation is a result of coming in contact with the UFO. So before I moved on to potentially Chris Mellon's response and a few of the details that I can briefly go over there while we have time, did you want to touch on the health issues? Cause it's a, it is a big topic. Well, look, this goes back to the Rendlesham case that we're just finding out where where one of the eyewitnesses is now getting medical clearance in order to uh, gain medical benefits for for their alleged injuries from this craft. How many what this as what a question, a follow-up question needs to be on this, Tim, is how many other close encounters with landed craft have there been? Okay. Has there been meetups between members of the United States military and UFOs that have landed on the ground and or crashed on the ground that have caused medical distress? And we're not talking PTSD here. We're talking radiation burns cancer i mean you look at stefan mikulik the canadian at falcon lake who had all sorts of radiation burns that were showing up like a dot pattern on his stomach okay how many more american uh, soldiers or military personnel i guess would be the proper term have had that happen right right and you're potentially t- you know opening up the pandora's box that you and i've talked about almost every day at this point um, in the fact that this would allow everyone that has had these experiences now to come forward because they're seeing that, Hey, there is a potential for me to actually get some kind of reparation compensation for uh, what I had to go through, you know, with my experience with UFO. 
And I think that that is massive. Now, does it also potentially muddy the waters? Now, it sure. may. But at the same rate, I think that um, the legitimate cases will filter through and you may even see some come out into the public that way. And that would be massive. Well, I mean, we also have to look at it, too, my friend. You know, like Kevin Day has been very public that his PTSD came from this incident. He had two incidents yeah. that happened, and this being the big one, that that really disturbed him. Indeed, and we met him on your show, and I think we experienced that. And so you're absolutely right with that. Please continue. I'm sorry to interrupt well, you. No, thank you for bringing that up. But But the idea behind Kevin is Kevin has said that this has affected him negatively. Does he now get coverage because of the incident in 2004? Where, where after the incident, after he was watching all of these Tic Tacs come out of nowhere, where he was tracking them, where he didn't sleep because of it, and then once everything ended and they got back to shore, the rest of his crewmates and, and other people on other ships started really bullying and harassing him over it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and... Yeah, and he's an absolute hero that he still came forward, you know, and has stuck by this story, even though it still upsets him to have to talk about and think about it. So, yeah, people like that absolutely should be compensated because it's destroyed their lives. And let's not call it anything short of that. It's the same way it ruined John Burroughs' body. You know, it, it it can ruin a life mentally. You know, I, I can't imagine the PTSD from something like that. So you're absolutely right, Dave. Right. I agree. I agree. And so shall we? Yeah, let's get into it. (laughs) So uh, Christopher Mellon came out with his opinion on the key takeaways from the 2023 ODNI report. And I feel that it's pretty well put. I agree with quite a lot of how things are put here. And I'm just going to summarize because he has five highlights And so just very briefly, um, his first point is that he sees that uh, the drones are playing a rapidly increasing role in deciding the outcome of military conflicts. Therefore, any capability that helps reduce the clutter and identify genuine aerial threats is of great value to the military and national security. And so in that regard, congressional initiatives related to UFO and UAP are already paying dividends by improving our ability to distinguish legitimate threats from innocuous balloons and other airborne clutter. And I'm assuming within the legitimate threats, he's including UFO. And so to move on to his point number two, uh, the total number of remaining military UAP incidents reported to the office has more than doubled from 143 in June of 2021 to 314 in August of this year, past year, 2022. The number will continue to grow in his opinion and with the importance of continuing UAP collection and analysis. Dave, feel free to interrupt me at any point because I'm just going to go through this so we can kind of just get it out there. And I am summarizing. Um, His point number three was thus far, Arrow seems to be doing well overall in obtaining cooperation from the military services and intelligence agencies. So the largest outstanding question in that regard is to pertain to the USAF and CIA collaboration, something Congress needs to closely monitor because we're not going to hear about it. 
Okay, right? So his point number four is the report presents the bare minimum of information needed to comply with Congress's request for the unclassified report. And so in some regards, the report is even less informative than the initial preliminary report released in 2021. I agree. And so there is also no indication in the report of the 314 events were in space or underwater or were attributable to foreign governments. And so there were unanswered questions lingering about the cases they did discuss. And so number five and his final point summarizing here, the good news is that the UAP issue is gaining traction and acceptance within the government. And some incidents have already been resolved and our nation may already be safer as a result. And so, for example, if it is true, as reported by the New York Times, that some of the incidents off the coast of California were identified as Chinese drones, then that is a huge breakthrough for the U.S. intelligence that would not have occurred absent the new focus on collecting and investigating UAP reports. I also agree with that. Here's the thing with Chris Mellon, and we have to remember this man is a, even though he comes from a very wealthy family, he is a career Washington bureaucrat. Okay, Yes, he doesn't have a party. He's worked for the Republicans. He's worked for the Democrats in the in the Department of National Defense. And everything that he says, though, is always going to paint a rosy picture when it comes to moving the ball forward. But Chris Mellon is also smart enough to know how to write it. He knows how to use a lot of words without giving up any sort of information. So he can sit there and he could play the rah-rah cheerleader that this report is positive and that it moves forward. But my question, if I were to sit in front of Mr. Mellon, would be, why should I be excited about this? Give me the juice. I'm thirsty. Give me the juice. Yeah. Just don't tell me don't tell me that hey DOD and look when I was a sports reporter okay totally different but same same concept I remember I had a a player one time you know we got to stick to our systems and you know if we stick to our systems that the coaches put in you know we're going to we're going to end up winning some hockey games I said what's the system because all the players are trained with clichés politicians and political advisors are trained in cliches. So I asked the player, I said, what's the system? He says, what do you mean? And I know hockey. So I said, are you playing a 2-1-2 on the left side? Are you playing a 1-2-2 on the right side? Are you going to play a 1-1-3 trap? A 1-4 trap? What system are you playing? Next question, please. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. But but the point that I'm getting at is this, Tim. Chris Mellon is, is a propaganda machine that is building up how awesome things are going in Washington. Lou Elizondo's tweets said the exact same thing. The rah, go America, USA, USA. 
type of chants regarding this topic. Give me a reason to cheer. Yeah. Okay. But Dave, you don't actually express the opinion, believe it or not, of the general public. And now I know that might be hard to say and hear. It's hard to say, actually, but it might be hard to hear. But the fact is, is that in the world of politics and with this topic being baby steps, and I mean, Elizondo said we need to think of this as a 20-mile game, and we're like two miles in, right? And so I think the point there being is that this second report, although it may mirror the first report, it is a baby step towards what we're looking for, which is looking into the topic and weeding out the real from the clutter, okay? And to see if the UFO topic is something that needs to be discussed further. And so we in this audience know it is real. And so it will initially. There's no way around discovering that this is real, right? Your audience knows that, but the general public doesn't. And Chris Mellon understands that. Lou Elizondo understands that, that we are baby stepping our way towards that. But we also have to be able to back it up when we do finally come forward with it, if we do finally come forward with it, right? And we also have to protect ourselves to not have to compensate for that 75 years of lies. We can't afford to, right? I'm not saying me. I'm saying politically, they can't afford to have to explain. And they don't want to open up that box, that Pandora's box that Dave talks about. They don't want to open that up, but they do want the issue to be moved forward. So it is going to be a long game. And so this is big. I mean, it may not appear it to our audience, but this is big. And the information in it is still big. Now, we would love the meat and potatoes, but if we did that, then obviously you're going to have to disclose a whole bunch of other stuff that gives the information behind because you can't just be like here's some great video you're gonna have to give details of that and they can't necessarily do that because of the why not? ways and means why not because of the method of because of the way they got the information um uh, and th- uh, that hold, is hold always on, going hold, to be the they ways got, and means they got, they got the information from an f-18 flying in the sky or an f-16 camera footage yeah. gun camera footage is nothing there's nothing secretive about that the only reason right, why they'd I, be hiding it is if it's their own technology. So the problem came in, do you remember like the how after New York Times came out with that article, um, there was dead silence from the military. They didn't actually put anything up on their website until after uh, SCU had done their work, like until fairly recently. And so there was a, you know, we were pulling teeth on those videos because they didn't want to discuss them. They weren't going to release them. That wasn't their plan. This whole topic was not the Pentagon's plan, right? So we have to consider the fact that we're not going to get any more videos from the military directly. And now they've covered themselves up that no more can really be leaked because if they are, there's going to be repercussions, right? TTSA can't throw their name on any of their videos anymore. That that will not happen, right? And I'm not sure if I exactly answered your question there, but please, back to you. Well, with 10 seconds left, you gave me no time for rebuttal. No time whatsoever. But I like the feistiness there, little Timmy Senor. You know, I felt some pushing and I some shoving there. I, I felt some I pushing and, 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 and shoving. I felt that felt good. <laughs> that felt good. It really did. Yeah, I, I dug deep on this one. 
Well, you know what? Stick around here because if you're on our YouTube side, uh, we, we will continue for a few minutes. But, uh, Tim, thank you for filling in on the UFO report. Once again, a great, great job. Thank you to Swamp Dweller for coming on in. And, and our, our brand-new friend, Patrick Spain, the biologist, coming on in talking some monsters and legends, which is always a little bit of fun there. And we got Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal rocking in the background with Little Brother is watching. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio. Rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in at home, at work, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, LGAP, Facebook, Spreaker, LinkedIn, the Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter at hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Remember, this show is copyright by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us. Because together, my friends, we're watching. We own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, we've got room for them, too. Good night. Good night.